You are listening to the Logos broadcast with Fergus James Murphy. Good evening and welcome to the Logos broadcast. It's the 30th of December and we're here for an end of year special of the Logos broadcast. Joining me are Mary Louise O'Donnell and John Waters, two titans of Irish public life. And uh, a number of the, I don't know if Mary Louise doesn't like that description, uh, but anyway, a number of people watching this will, will be very familiar with John. He's been a bit of a, a fixture on this platform. But Mary Louise, if you don't mind, would you just describe yourself uh, to people who might know who you are uh, and, and how, how do you identify yourself and, and your role uh, in Irish life now and, and in the past? My, my role in Irish life, I don't know, my role in my own life at the moment is one of silence. I suppose, I, how would I describe myself? I don't know. I suppose at the bottom of everything I've ever done in the last how many years was I was basically a teacher. You know, I, I taught teachers. I taught university, um, universities. I wrote a bit. And my background would be really in the arts. I was trained in the arts from the time I was very young because I had a parent who worked in the arts. So I was around music and poetry and drama. So if I was to describe myself, I'd be more oral than written. I, I'm a storyteller, I suppose. Good teachers are good storytellers. Um, I, I worked a bit in, in politics and, and the, and in the Senate for nine years, which again, is um, with the privilege of being a speaker, again, a storyteller within the Senate, except that we were involved in a lot of legislation. Um, I'm, I'm a survivor, I suppose. I had a child on my own in the 80s, and I'm a single mother as well. So um, I don't think it was discovered feminism in the 80s, nor the 90s, nor the 2000s. I was discovered many years ago by good nun teaching. Um, what am I? I? I survivor, a woman, still here, but basically, I suppose, an oral, aural. My, my background would be with that of the oral and the aural, and I would be, in the best sense, I hope, an inspirational teacher because I was inspired by them when I was young. And an observer, and a, a very good observer of Irish life, culture, people, and who, how we breathe and where our hearts are, or we think they are. So is that... That's I think that's pretty good. And you oh, obviously, yeah. they, what was that thing you said there? And a bit of a sense of humor. Yes. So it's very it, important. It's very it is. is and spiritual. Exactly. And spiritual. And spiritual. And I believe in that. Well, you, your mother is, has clearly been a huge part of your life. And um, do you think you'll ever get to touch her again now with, with all that's going on? Like, like, what's your interactions? What are your interactions with her like? Well, now? they're through windows. They're through windows. And now they're not even through the window. But my mother, interesting enough, is 97 and said, I don't want to come to the window again in one full sentence, having not spoken for about a year. And I said, why not, mommy? And she, I don't like it. It's not right. I said, you're completely correct about that. But I'm, I'm not in a position to have those kind of conversations with her anymore. She'll take everything in. But and I don't want to undermine, she's with the nuns, she's with the little sisters of the poor who have that moment of finish on everything they do. You know, even the way they present meals to my mom, you know, the way they present a tray. I mean, it's very important because older people were used to a knife and a fork and a serviette and a cup and a so. The standard, their finish, even on the bedspread and the way they put the, 
flowers, those small things may mean an awful lot because it is confinement. And I have learned to, I bring my own pathology now to what I'm saying because I, my experience of growing old in Ireland, being in my late 60s myself, my mother in her late 70s, I'm experiencing an Ireland that is completely different to the one I thought it was going to be. And there are thousands of people like my mother in, in fact, the Alone report said there was 12,000 elders. I call them elders because the, in the Greeks called their, the, the, usually the people of Corinth or Athens were elders who tried to convince the king of something and he was never taking their advice in the end. And when the city was fell then, the chorus would come back on the stage of elders and say, why didn't you listen to me? So I consider my mother to be full of wisdom of, of life, you know, and um, they're not listened to. And um, there's a presumption that there, that if one gets old, one's mind is old when it could be alive, you know, totally alive and young. So I see her through a window. I have much to say about that. And I know you don't want to talk about the elders and how we're, treating people but there, the alone report to go back on that said that there were 12,000 elders in um, residential nursing homes who didn't need to be there now that says something about what we should be doing in the communities and home and giving people the the facility to mind at home if it's possible I mean mm. I know it's not possible in some in some situations but mom anyway is there and she has what I haven't got not yet anyway she has a tremendous sense of acceptance and it floors me every time I speak to her or talk to her or talk at her or look at her and she the sense of acceptance of her age and where she is and not interfering yeah. or making our lives troublesome traumatized she understands trauma and so she is silent in her acceptance of her situation because we tried for three years we tried to mind her and we couldn't mm. So it's a sadness for me and a grace for me and a memory. And I get extremely sad when I leave and then I'm fine because I know she's fine, but it's not mm. easy. No, it's not, but it's not easy for a thousand different reasons. Like it's not just growing old. That isn't easy because you're not allowed to grow old now. You see, you can't grow old. <laughs> In America, you don't even get buried, you know? Yes. You can look, and you know. and this is at a time when, Ireland does have an aging population, but um, so the, the problem is... We're not is paying attention to it. We're paying medical attention, but we're not paying social and artistic attention. There's no sense in Ireland where the arts should be an absolute... They should just be part of life in, 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 in residential homes. The same way as physiotherapy is, the same way as you're washing your hands, sanitize, sanitizing everything is, and meals are. I mean, there are hundreds of artists and performers and out of work who should be, plays should be rehearsed there, orchestra should be there, quintets, quartets. I keep saying this, you know, that it should be a creative and social model should be number one and the medical model uh, should follow that. But we have it in reverse. But it's we very hard. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, we spoke. Sorry, I, I'm jumping over here. What was that very last thing? No, but we, no, just that we have it in reverse. I and mean, yeah. you need energy. You need passion and energy to, to pilot that. Um, and it's done in a piece. Me, somebody comes in and plays a guitar out of tune and, and the elders are supposed to think that was a great day out. It's rubbish. 
it's rubbish. And I mean, I'm not against volunteers. They're outstanding, yes. the people who do work. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just thinking it should be, it should be a statutory requirement that if you are in a residential area, home, that you should have all the facilities and you should have be able to have nature, that you have an expectation of beauty, you know, mm. an expectation of sound and an expectation of music and voice and... I, I, that it shouldn't, why should it disappear? I think I gave you this example before. And uh, there was a quintet came to play in a, um, uh, kind of in um, the middle of a, um, uh, a courtyard. A courtyard, exactly. A courtyard of a, actually it was a residential home. And the elders came to the windows during COVID. And it was like, they had given them gold, the music they played. And they were absolutely enthralled and enraptured. I think that should be a requirement. I think the Arts Council were sitting there giving out money. You know, just giving out like a kind of an artistic bank. Why isn't there a, a, a place for that? Why aren't all artists, all people who express for a living, who read for a living, read aloud, who dance, who create puppetry, who write poetry, who rehearse, why isn't part of all of that, as, you know, it's easily done. It's as good as a vaccination. And mm. that it would be life-giving. I've tried, I've tried. It's yes. very difficult. It's very, and some homes do it, but you might have somebody, you know, who's, who's kind of passionate about it and can pursue mm. it, you know. But it should be, a, a, if you have to go in, and, and people do, and it's right that they, you know, mm. that they're minded and safe, safe and warm and looked after, you know, because families can't do it or for whatever the reason that they should have that facility. I yes. think it's important because the arts have take, they take second place anyway to mathematics. We all know that. And we'll come to that. Um, a year ago, Mary Louise, you and I spoke uh, about the religious experience in Ireland. I don't know if you remember that conversation uh, in detail, but you mentioned, or we both mentioned, the act of walking or nailing up Crogpatrick. And John, I want to ask you about your experience on Crogpatrick uh, in July of 2020, if you don't mind. Uh, can you set the scene of what went on there um, on Reek Sunday and the significance of that and, and, and the part that you played in, in that event? Well, <clears throat> Uh, the event was uh, really by way of uh, marking the occasion of Reek Sunday <clears throat> at a time when it had been cancelled by the church. And uh, as it happened on the day, the guards were all over uh, Morisk uh, uh, and, and uh, the village nearby. And, and they were, they had every, every parking place was closed off. The car park was open, but it's a relatively small car park. But all the places along the road that people would park were blocked off with what you call those things, yellow cones. And uh, so we, we wanted to simply be there to mark this day uh, because it seemed to us to be important. And so we went up. I didn't climb the rig because my health is not what it was. Uh, I went up as far as the, 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 the shrine on the, uh, it's about a few hundred yards up. And I spoke up there. So it was really uh, an act of just, uh, I won't say defiance, but it was an act of, of, of registering a protest and an acknowledgement of the significance of this. And that, that, you know, it seemed to me to be, this whole thing seemed to be a part of a pattern, which maybe we'll go into later on. Uh, 
that was behind all of this uh, COVID business, that it, you know, it wasn't from the very beginning clearly about health at all. It was about other things and fundamentally about controlling people. And it seems to me now to be about breaking the spirit of people uh, in, on a global basis. I'm not saying that the people administering here, they're working a protocol which saves at the top, you know, saving lives. I will, you know, give them the credit to let to believe or to accept that they think that's what they're doing, but it isn't what they're doing. They're destroying the spirit of the people. And that is the objective behind it. That's the purpose. That's how the protocol is written. And that's why it is written. And, you know, uh, so that was really what Crow Patrick was about, what, what that day in, in, in July was about. I worked in Westport many years ago in the railway station and, uh, you know, I used to go out there and, uh, you know, it, it means a lot. It is, as I said in the day, it is, in a certain sense, Ireland's Calvary. Uh, and, and it is, you know, that's it. our history is, is, goes back to this place and our, our, our modern history goes back to it, our Christian history, our Christian civilizational history. And it seemed to me to be important that it be acknowledged. So that was really why I, I, I I wanted to do that. And, and I, I'm just interested in what Mary Louise is saying there, because I do think that's really important. Uh, you know, I, I, I've kind of been kind of unlucky in my life in this respect that when I was young, it was unfashionable to be young and it was fashionable to be old. And now that I'm growing old, it's only fashionable to be young and the older to be disregarded. And I don't mean that in a, I mean, if you think back, well, you wouldn't remember Fergus, but Mary Louise would, that, you know, 30, 40 years ago on TV, you saw old people all the time. <laughs> you know, you Siobhan McKenna, Siobhan McKenna or Kieran McMahon. I mean, artistic people, arti uh, Kieran McMahoney or, 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 or Seamus Ennis. And they would be talking and there would be a, Jay Byrne would interview them with a reverence for their wisdom, mm. right? And that mirrors something that was true also in the wider society that almost every home had an old person in it, a, a grandparent a man or a woman, and, and they would come out on a sunny day and sit on the windowsill, you know, and look up and down and talk to people as they passed. And this was like regarded as part of the balance. People didn't talk like this, but it was regarded as a natural part of the, part of the natural order of things. This has been obliterated in the last 25, 30 years, uh, whereby we, there's taken out of sight and hidden away in these, I think, you know, not everybody, I, I think nursing homes are horrendous places. You know, I, I, I've been, anytime I've had to visit anybody there, I had to take to the bed for at least 48 hours afterwards for the, because the, the experience of that alone, and these wouldn't even be relatives of mine, mm. it was so devastating to me, to my psyche. Uh, that, you know, to see, I mean, I saw, I was, there was a man in, for example, in Mullingar that I met through my work years ago and I wrote an article about him. He's a wonderful old man uh, uh, and, and, and he'd written even a, a book about J James Joyce and he was a brilliant, brilliant man and he ended up in this place and it was just heartbreaking. His few books were on a, you know, a kind of a sideboard in the room. He was sitting on this bed. It was like a prison cell. His whole life was there and not there. And uh, I don't know, we can do better than this, you know, but we don't run. You see this, if you want to actually characterize that and what COVID is about, they're both about the same thing in this sense. It's a complicated thing, but what it's about fundamentally is saying, our country, our politics, 
our economics, our philosophy, our theology are no longer about serving people. They're no longer about people. They're about serving interests. This is what it's all about. The vaccine is not about making people healthy. It's about selling large amounts of money. It's about the fact that Ireland, for example, is dependent on the pharmaceutical industry for its economic survival. That's what it's about. We are simply the, the instruments of their power and their profit making. They are no longer there to serve us, to provide products, to make us healthier, whatever it might be. And so that's an inversion of everything that life is supposed to be about and public life is supposed to be about and politics is supposed to be about. And that has happened in Ireland very dramatically, I think, in the last 30 years. Like a moment of rupture occurred when that we just flipped and we ceased to be about ourselves and our own people and about our interests and our, and our, 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 our lives, the quality of our lives, the beauty of our lives, all those things. And uh, so that's kind of, I suppose, again, you know, going back to Kirkpatrick, Fergus, I mean, you know, that the idea seemed to be that because people got some joy out of this, it had to be stopped. It had to be suppressed. You know, the idea that you would, you know, spread a virus up on a fucking mountain in, in, a, in a beautiful uh, summer's day is utter nonsense. Whatever about the rest of it, which is also nonsense, but this was utter nonsense. And to hear bishops praising this utter nonsense mm. and having people nod their heads when they should just say, just get out of here. Just get out of here. Would Shut you, up and get out of here. Would you have any sympathy for the fact that the bishops themselves, like we all know how old Irish clergy are, you know, they're, they're not young men by and large and that they might feel that rightly or wrongly, but that their health is in danger by doing their job. Do you know? If you want to go to bed and stay there, I couldn't care less. Yes. I couldn't care less. Just stay it's out of our lives. It's interesting that the, the response of the Catholic Church to COVID has been um, the odd time for the odd mass and the eight people to sit on that side and the seven people to sit on that side and only to walk up to get your communion um, when you're told. It, it, they, didn't, they didn't come with any energy either. They didn't come with any help. They, they, they had no... They didn't surround their people either. They didn't come and help them. You know, they, they, they can even. They didn't even help them with their voices. They didn't help them with what they were saying. They just heard it in. I, they should have been a counteraction in some way. I, and even if they got jailed over, but they should have been a sacred counteraction. They didn't even come with a sacred voice to us and say just listen here for a minute, you know, or look up here for a minute, or let me talk to you for a second. They didn't even come with poetry. They, they came with nothing except only six can sit here and only seven, and I'm locking this door. And if you want mass, and mass is extremely important to people, young and old, who are, who are believed, extremely. It's ritualistic. It's like you, you, you're, you're, you're in touch with something. You might you mightn't believe, people might be listening to this that don't believe a word of it. That's fine. But there are those who do. There's something about it that's about the other and people need the other. And they didn't even give us that. Yes. I, I, I was disappointed in their lack of 
the sacred, you know, I was disappointed in that, whatever about their orthodoxy, you know, and their yes. dogmas and their, my mother used to say, but, but I, it's about God, I believe in God, I'm not really interested in what he's saying, you know, on the altar, because he was boring us to death with something, there was something other than that going on, it was a platform or a conduit, you know, it was a, we didn't get that, 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 Whereas when the young people were killed in America, do you remember those young people who were on a balcony? Yes, in Berkeley, and they yeah. Died in America. Yeah, it was a tragedy, and many of them were very trauma hurt. They had nowhere to go but to the church. Do you remember that? There wasn't they went, it was the it was the church, I remember, that they that they congregated in the parents and the relations who came. They, people need to go somewhere for sustenance. They didn't offer us that sustenance, whether you were believers or not, we weren't offered it. And the spaces are big enough to take hundreds of us without breathing on each other. I found that they didn't stand up for it. They should have stood up. And not, not, alone, not alone that, Mario Louise, but also, I mean, you just think about it like people were left. This is partly what the article I've, I've written in the last uh, 24 hours is about. People were left panic stricken in nursing yeah. homes, unable to speak to their loved ones. Now, stress is one of the things it does. It disables the immune system. And there's a very plausible case to be made that the people who died in the nursing homes, over a thousand of them in the earlier part of the year, mainly died not from anything like COVID or anything like that, but from uh, conditions blowing up because of they had the, what they call comorbidities, interesting phrase, but because they had these conditions and they their immune systems fell down because mm -hmm. of stress. Mm -hmm. And the, the church was part of that. The church refused to, over, to say, to remember mm -hmm. Jesus and the lepers and refused to remember the, the gospels they had been drilling into us for year upon year upon year. And not mm -hmm. alone that, but when those poor people died and when anybody died in the last, they were buried as I said, as I wrote, like convicted, like convicted murderers in the corners of prison yards, all but for the quick lie. That's the way they were buried. What a shameful country we have become. And nobody raised a voice about it. Mm. It's a shocking thing. I, I, I don't know. You see, one of the things that I can't get my head around anymore is that nobody is shocked by the things I expect them to be shocked by, but they're yeah. shocked by nonsense. <laughs> nonsense, absolutely. Like, like Connemara Golfgate, nonsense. Yeah, that that's kind of nonsense. nonsense. You know, or, or if somebody, you know, misspeaks and says, you know, uh, uh, if they say, oh, uh, he's a colored person instead of saying a, polar, a person of color. That's a shocking thing. Oh my God, what could he, what has he said? Oh, sack him, sack him, get him sacked immediately. I know. But people can be allowed to die alone. If not indeed caused to die alone, which is what my article is about, because that's, that's the back of it. They must have known what would happen when they did this. Yes, there was a very interesting senator um, wrote a huge piece uh, and a very good piece it was to and well researched on the power 
of loneliness to close down people. You know, it was um, Keith Swanick. He's a good guy, Keith Swanick. He's a doctor out in mm. uh, North Mayo, way out North Mayo, probably know. And yes, it was quite yeah. brilliant because he's seen it. And and the I, I think you're talking about the absolute devastating power of loneliness, what loneliness can do, close the person down, close it all down, and close the system down and the energy down and the joy down. I, I, yes. I, I agree can with you. Imagine about it. Why yeah. do we, can we imagine it? Just uh, the three of us here now, if we can just briefly try to just think of it and describe I'll try to describe it. That you live a life with those you love, close to them, confiding in them, every day, ringing them, texting them. They are your life. Mm. And then in your final hours, days, weeks, you're cast into this room where they cannot reach you. And you think, this can't be true. No, no, if I'm going to die, they will do something. If I'm going to die, they will tell me and they will tell my family and they will come to me. Yes, 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 no. What kind of a country has this become? Why do we need this church anymore? Mm. Tell me, what is it for? It is for nothing. But yet, John, you are a very, a very a religious person. You're a, religious is probably the wrong word. You're a deeply spiritual man. You know. Yeah, I tell you something. Mary, not saying, are you saying this church? Are you saying any church, yeah. or any other, or any? No, no, no I'm not saying. I'm saying this church. This church. This, yeah, this church, church is winding down, though, isn't it? Not. It and had no bravery over COVID. And a good it's thing too. Down. Yes. But what's going to replace it, John? What is going to replace it? Because the banks have replaced it in one way. They have replaced it in relation to power. If it had power over the people, if it had power over politics, if it had power over education, if it had power over the way people lived, and it did, because I would have seen it in fact, I would have seen it in the towns of Mayo. Okay. What's got the power now in another guise? The banks. The lenders to the great banks have just made 215 billion over the, over the COVID six to eight months in lending fees. Like the, the rich are getting richer as the COVID, you know, closes, the, the, starting with joy, oh, yeah. people down. But oh, yeah. So what's going to replace it, John, when the banks conglomerate? Well, it's a complicated question. I, I, it's a complicated question in the sense that, I, I mean, I, I understand what you mean. Yeah. That's not a replacement, obviously. No, but no, but this is replacing it in relation I, to power. I spent many years uh, when I was at the Irish Times trying to open up these questions to, to no avail because nobody wanted to talk about these things. And, and the fundamental thing I was asking is, you know, where can anybody show me the society that survived for more than two generations without a, a concept of the transcendent? It's not possible. It doesn't happen. So we're actually in a free fall. Mm. We're heading, we're plummeting. Well, what Thomas Sheridan says has replaced it is the ritual of, of the virus, of, of the pandemic and all I of that. Want to come to that. Well, you see, that, that doesn't replace it. That, in fact, it's very interesting. I agree with Thomas that it has extraordinarily, extraordinarily uh, religious overtones in a certain sense, that it has, in a sense, co-opted oh, yeah. the ritualistic and, 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 and incantational elements of religion. But actually, in a certain sense, it is, it is an anti-religion. And I want to explain what I mean. That... If you actually think back to mythology, to, 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 to what we know about the very first kind of 
signs, there were marks that were put on stones and the like by, mm. by human beings. The, the mythology that they created out of, out of, in their imaginations was about transcendence and community. They were, they were the two most important things. The, the collective uh, group and their membership of it and the sense of the possibility of immortality mm. in whatever way that would be imagined. And so what that did in the beginning, that was actually in the beginning of what we call it, what you might call cultural religion. This is a complicated thing. I don't want to get into what's true and not true. I'm just simply, this is the way we, in human history, this is what you see. And uh, uh, so religion dealt with the most fundamental problem that man faced. Yes. Imagination, which was death. Mm. It dealt with that and has dealt with it to in this, we, we all who grew up in this country have seen it in the most recent past, you know, the way that we deal with death. I mean, I grew, I grew up in a town of 2,000 people. You know, this is an interesting thing as well, you know when people die. They die in, in, in December and January, by and large, old people. This is, happens every year. You know this in a small town. And then every so often, but maybe four or five times in a population that size, somebody would die suddenly that shouldn't die. That would happen as well. So you can see the same patterns emerging in the COVID narrative, but they're given a different explanation. But what I think that, that COVID has done is it has penetrated into that ancient uh, uh, primal, what they call the lizard brain, where there is no reason. There is only emotion. And the greatest emotion of all is fear. And it has, and it has awoken that again in the absence of religion. That it was this, it seems to me, is an operation that was time for the moment when we would be post-Christian in a meaningful sense. And there's other timing aspects too. The Trump thing is a timing thing. The media thing is a timing thing because it picked the me it picked the moment when the, the media was halfway through its free fall into oblivion, but still potent in the sense that it could reach certain people, particularly, interestingly, older people. So I think that Thomas Sheridan is right, but I think the meaning he adduces from it is, is not the one I would adduce. I think there's, what they have actually done is created an anti-religion. They have tapped into the residual, what you might call, uh, you know, it's like the, the tingling of the amputated limb. It's that kind of tapped into that. And they've actually demobilized it now. And they've made people as terrified again. I mean, you see, uh, young men, 22 years of age, going around masked up to the gills, terrified, jumping out of your way, right? I feel like saying, you realize that you have a one in 300,000 chance of dying from COVID. But every time you cross a road, a public road in a town, you have a one in 700 chance of being killed. Get a life for Christ's sake before John, you're dead. Okay, do you not think that in one sense that COVID has really, um, uh, that has to pull some other people, other aspects of us away from freneticism and taught us that there is, it's okay to do nothing. It's okay maybe to, uh, to look at yourself and maybe uh, re reflect on 
what the hell you're at, you know, and maybe well, you shouldn't be doing that. Now, hold on, maybe you shouldn't be doing that. Maybe you shouldn't be in a car if you're young. You Maybe you shouldn't be putting your child into a creche at six o'clock in the morning, you know, to go to the work in the bank or wherever. Maybe you should just, hold on a minute here, horse, that maybe I just should be making different decisions here, moving out, moving wait, on, what, moving away. Uh, it's whatever. giving people time to, to rethink. And there are those who will rethink so, socially, socially, how they want to live their lives yeah. and how... Yeah, but, but, but what... You know, is there, is that what about the cost? What about the cost of it? What about the cost? I mean, uh, you know, I, look, any, any change may have the possibility of benefits, but the cost of this is going to be astronomical under innumerable headings. Uh-huh. Economic. We're basically now plummeting towards 1929 if we haven't already passed it. And... Uh, you know, and the consequences of that will be life and death consequences in many yeah, I, I understand, but, but in, in one way, yes, I hear what you're saying, but it's it's kind of bleak. And I'm trying to just find, you know, this, well, sometimes, you know, you know, things you know but life is bleak, I know. And I, I sometimes, I am, I think, from, if somebody said to me, where are you emotionally? I'm in the, the depths of melancholia and have been since I was five. You know, there has been no change there. It's just that I used to call. I was wondering about why I'm, why am I not, why do I sound happy, but I'm not really. But I'm, so melancholia, I would, I would yeah, understand but, what you're saying, that I'm not no, looking for, yeah. Well, I mean, those things are a big, joyous way out. No. But what I'm saying, I'm just asking the question: Do are, 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 is there no benefit from relearning? Just the phoneticism of the way no. we've been, the pornography no. of our lives, no, and the greed and the self-satisfaction and the gimme more and I need more and the shelves and I've got a bit of this and I must have more of that and the vans going up and down the road and I mean, you could start with Amazon and end with Super Value and you can't get the stuff in fast and more furiously look, into her houses look, and houses. Mary Louise, like, if you were to speak to uh, that man, Theodore Herriman. Yes. Uh, yes, uh, I know who you're talking or, about. Or somebody yeah. like Don Tidy, whom I know, and say to them, did you gain anything from your horrific experience of being kidnapped, being terrorised? They'd probably say, yeah, it taught me to value certain things. Yes. Does that justify it? Of course not. Oh, I'm not justifying it. I'm saying that I'm trying to find Jesus, Mary and Joseph. You know, no, but, but, but first of all, we need to indict. You see, the problem is we're not indicting the crime or the criminals in this. We, we can't move to the to the exculpation. Well, well, I can't get a ticket to China because the one thing the one thing that Trump said the China virus the China virus would let yeah. you know the China virus Wuhan oh and it's not Wuhan anymore now according well, to the another story as well. There's another story as well, uh, Marilise, that doesn't involve China. It involves uh, you know the great the World Economic Forum and Klaus Schwab and his Great Reset. And yeah, that's, well, again, the media are not telling people. I don't about, you want to use the word conspiracy now, because we'll be down another road here. You well, know, I, I mean, let, I can talk about conspiracies because conspiracy, yeah. every single thing that ever happened in history, from a war to an assassination to a coronation, involved uh, conspiracy. Yeah. Well, some aspect of maybe conspiracy. But to, but to understand history, you have to, have to acknowledge. You see, as somebody was saying there recently, you know, a conspiracy is the only talk about conspiracy. This is when it's poor people who are speaking. Uh, when it's rich people who are speaking, it's strategic planning. 
All I mean, I mean, I mean, I could, I could, I could name about fifteen conspiracies within the bank. So yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. But yeah. So anyway, like, go ahead. You were, you were saying. I explained this before. It's a very interesting thing. This concept. you have to. You see, this, this conspiracy theory is a spell phrase, and it's very interesting. A spell phrase is one which is like a, a cattle prod. It causes people to recoil from something. You know the way the cattle, when they hit, touch the wire, they go, they, they back off very fast. Conspiracy theory is designed that way. And it's designed actually by the CIA. Now, when you think about it, conspiracy, as I say, conspiracy is, is there somebody conspiring or not? You could have a good conspiracy, a bad conspiracy. Theory, hmm, interesting. Now you think of those two words, one of them is, has a sinister undertone, that's the word conspiracy. But the phrase conspiracy theory takes all the, the sinister aspects of the word conspiracy and dumps them on the theory and the theorist. So we're not any longer, so as soon as you hear it, you're no longer looking, who's doing this terrible thing? Who's planning this, you know, diabolical uh, event? We're thinking, why is this guy saying that somebody is planning mm. some diabolical mm. event? Mm. It's a very clever trick. Fiendish. Yeah, get that distinction. Yeah, yeah. No. I would probably not, but nobody's asking the question. I don't have lots of discussion. I don't see or hear lots of uh, any discussion on, how did this all happen? How did this work? So nobody's having that discussion. But, but Mary, the, the media will not permit any. There are lots of discussions online, all over YouTube. You just don't see them. Yeah, but not yeah. on the mainstream media. Absolutely not. No, no. It's I just. Permitted. I want to ask. Yeah. I want to ask Mary Louise because the 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 narratives on this are so in in tune in unison, right? Anyways, I want to ask you about. Uh, your son's experience of this uh, in his in his job, basically, as uh, how how much strain do you think he has has seen? Because listening to John, it sounds like this is a complete and utter fabrication. And watching the news, you are led to believe that um, the system is overwhelmed and we can't cope and all all that. So, do you mind me asking about his experience or or? Um, well, and, and your experience of his experience. Well, well, he's well. It, I, I, he doesn't tell me about his patients, and he doesn't tell me about his work in the in the hospitals or, or uh, that. He doesn't speak about it. But he, he does. He did. He has seen very awful situations, and he has seen because he's in the area of neurology. He has seen um, what he would call. COVID accentuating people's um, neurological difficulties, problems, strokes, all of those areas. And he has found it a very, very difficult. I think the most difficult thing about it, he said, is the fact that they're very alone, you know, and that um, um, it's a hard one for me to answer because I he would I would not give away he doesn't speak about it but I've seen the strain on him I mean he was staying at home here because he was he's trying to save for a house and all of that stuff but we had to get out and um, we had to get an apartment because he was terrified that I'd get it it terrorized him they were terrorized around they're young he's in his thirties he's um, young senior registrar but he's still very young in the area of medicine and were at the front line in the matter and then the Vin Vincent's and he was terrified for me because they were terrorized around him and 
it's more calm now because he got COVID and he was very unwell with a flu, a very, very bad flu and got, got very unwell and was out for about 17 days and was actually said afterwards to me, I'm glad I'm over it. I'm glad I got it and I'm over it and I can go back now and I am waiting for it to happen you know i'm waiting and then seeing colleagues of his who got very sick and colleagues of his who weren't sick at all and seeing people die and see people going out in body bags and no visitors and no this you know and he said it was just awful and the matter was a very epicenter and still is of the area and then he would point out as well and john would be i know what i'm talking about here he would have mentioned this himself just in his last sentence that people who mightn't have had, you know, people from communities who have to live four and five and six to a room or don't, uh, the lower socioeconomic disadvantaged communities would be more susceptible to this, would have lack of education, lack of knowledge, or working in, in um, the bone factories, you know, and in agricultural meat factories. And, uh, so he would saw a whole sociological divide as well. And of course, obviously, um, the elders. But so I, I'm, I'm generalizing because it's difficult for me, but I did see, um, I saw him at one stage in a job that he thought he was going to love and he does love, become fearful and trepidatious and nervous and not on the Lewis and walk and the bicycle and stand back and forward. This was in the first close down and now we're coming nearer that, more mature now, no, but I can see that he saw a sign of medicine that he might have seen if he had been out in maybe a village in Africa with a polio epidemic or something. Mm. But but John makes another point to this, you see, that did people die because of COVID or did people die, COVID was just another, another of the aspects that killed them. You know, they died of pneumonia or they died of as they get older and they die, well, they get older and they may mainly die of pneumonia or they die of kidney failure or liver failure or whatever. Well, Did it accentuate it or was it the cause? I don't know. He never. He yeah, really... well, I mean, for example, can I just like over 4,000 every year, over 4,000 Irish people die from uh, uh, respiratory conditions. Yes. Over 6,000 people die from smoking related illnesses. That's right. Some of them may be the same people. Diabetes. So, Spread them over a month, you have a hell of a lot of statistics there. Now, people always died of the flu, elderly people in particular. They died, or they at least in the flu, the flu season, they died. That's what I said earlier. If you, if you live in a small town, you see this pattern. I mean, because when I was a child, my father had a, an absolute kind of a, 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 a kink about funerals. He, when somebody died that he knew, or somebody in the town, even if he didn't know them very well, he would insist on being represented at their funeral and as sending a mass card. And I was, from a very early young age, I was actually sent along to do this. I was his aide-de-camp, you know, and, and I would arrive with the mass card and I would have to get assigned with priest. So I spent a lot of, I know this is a bit macabre, but I spent a lot of my time as a child and as a teenager going to funerals. So I took in a lot about the patterns and all that and the sadness of it. Now, you see, I, I, my, my belief is there's a number of factors. I think the panic, the stress is a huge factor. And that's media generated and WHO generated. There's the appropriation of lots of, we've had lots and lots of instances of people being claimed. Uh, we've heard stories of families who said that, you know, if they were had difficulty getting the body released of a loved one, they were told, if you put down COVID, there's no problem. 
you don't, there's, some, there's a problem, maybe a couple of weeks, this kind of thing. There's been all kinds of falsification going on. That's mm. the first thing I would say. Second thing I would say, people always died of, of flus. Mary Louise there used the phrase he, that he had a flu. They're telling, they keep telling it, it's not the flu, it's not the flu. Well, it's flu-like, yes? If you had this, if we had never heard the word coronavirus, which I think most of us hadn't until a year ago. Uh, yeah, we, we would, if, you'd, if we got something, you'd say, I have a dose of the flu. And sometimes, I mean, I've had terrible doses of the flu. I had one one time, I think it was actually at the time of the swine flu. I don't know if it was swine flu, but I was in bed for three months. Couldn't move. Like, you know, it's not, it's not like illness and death didn't suddenly get invented last March. You know, it's like we're talking like they did. You know what I mean? Like I, I, and, and, and if you actually think about it, it's like a conjuring trick that they're using stuff that's in plain sight that has happened through history. If you go back, I mean, the other day, somebody was sending me some links for all the number, I can't remember the exact numbers, I was some astronomical number of people that were waiting, to, uh, waiting lists in hospitals and ICU beds and all that. So I said, oh yeah, that looks shocking. Then you do a Google search, you put in 2017, you put in 2014, you get figures which are actually higher, but nobody noticed. Nobody knew, nobody spoke about it. Like we've heard for years about people on trolleys in hospitals, hundreds of them in, in the height of this, the flu season. Why is nobody mentioning that now? Why is it only COVID? Like it is the most extraordinary thing that people- You're right, it has been a recurring, saying, yeah. It has been a recurring thing in, in Irish. Yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, and, and in fact, the number of ICU beds has been reduced over the years, mm. uh, quite dramatically. Uh, and and that's another factor. Should, and I would I, say... To the best, no, can I just say this to, to the best you? of my knowledge, sorry. Yes, sorry. Yes. Yeah. No, no, just I, to, I, yeah, sorry. Just to add this, to, that, to the best of my knowledge, uh, there has been no increase in ICU beds since mm. last spring. Now, why not? My son would say that, and I don't want to be talking about him, but, but he would say that the biggest problem is the fact that they have let the, um, the health um, decline to such an extent that it is a system that is, not, is so fragile that it is not able if something happens like this, or if we get an epidemic of flu or an epidemic of obesity or an epidemic of diabetes or whatever. He said, it's just not able, it's too fragile. It's, we will not fill the posts. We don't know where the money is going. It's all into a hole. Do you know, and there's millions and millions and millions and millions and there's posts not filled and people will tell you they can't get this, they can't get that, they can't get the other, cancer patients, this patient, that patient, the other patient, transplant patients, patients waiting for this, that and the other. And he said, it is so fragile that to make, anything that would rattle it that's the problem it's a major major oh, problem. i agree okay. to roost. Okay. yeah but okay. i said i'd like to ask no. you a question all that all that all that all that except you see this there's a very interesting thing that happens here uh mary louise and, and fergus we we follow a certain line of logic and that's clear and, and there's no dispute in that what you've said there the problem is that why then why did somebody think that locking people up might be a solution. Why in all of our history have we had these kind of problems and everybody taught about dealing with them medically, logistically, you know, in terms of, you know, staff, in terms of resources? 
where on earth does the idea, completely unproven and still unproven, that locking people in their homes, that curtailing people's movements, that terrorizing them as they go about their business with police activity and so forth, that that is a remedy for any of the things we're talking about. It's an absolutely absurd proposition. In the well, they totally believe that if you do that, that you will hold on to the capacity within the ICU and within the very traumatized centres, because okay. we only okay. have a certain amount of them. And okay. then we can't... We, we yes. can't do, you remember, do you remember, Mary Lee, two weeks to flatten the curve? When was that? When was that? You see? You see what I mean? Like, there's something here that, that we're not... You see, okay, can I come to the bottom line here? We do not Are you have back it. to Dominic Cummings then? Are you back to Dominic Cummings that the way around this is herd immunity? Do nothing. And the That's weak the will die out and the strong will survive. Is that what you're well, back to? Well, well, the fact of it is that governments cannot stop a virus. Well, that is... That's a fairly bland, fairly big statement. And but they seem to right now. It's true. But, but John, uh, to be fair, whatever about the morality of this, it seems they're keeping... They're keeping it under wraps in Australia and New Zealand by their measures of, of just not letting anyone in. Maybe maybe it's too late in the day to talk about that kind of elsewhere, but they do seem to have... Well, that's, very there's two, that's very interesting, because if you go back to March, there's, there's two very interesting things that happened in March, which I think tell us a lot about this. And it's interesting you bring that up, Fergus. The first was, there was a football match between Italy and Ireland, rugby match, I think, scheduled for March the 8th, of, I think it was a Saturday. Mm. And it was cancelled about a week in advance. But the flights containing all of the spectators weren't stopped. Nobody stopped them. So the entire point of the exercise was cancelled, was annulled by the secondary decision not to cancel the flights because they all came and they went around Dublin and drank their heads off for the weekend, spreading whatever diseases they had. And then they went back to Italy. That's and the first thing. Now, the second thing is this. And this is... Yeah, the second thing is interesting as well, and even more because it's a bigger point. And I just want to, as a preface, I want to to say, well, okay, you know, we know the sensibility that you meet illness with. What is it? It's compassion. It's kindness. It's tenderness, right? I mean, in the old, if you had a flu, even if you were, if you were in a workplace with somebody and they came in coughing and sneezing, your first instinct wasn't be, get out of here, you're going to kill me, you know? It would be, are you okay? Can I get you anything? You know, uh, would you try a hot whiskey? I'd run across the road and get a nagging. You know, whatever. That was the, right. Now, what was the first thing I noticed about the official response to COVID-19? The first formal official statement by a senior figure in Irish life. On the 6th of March, this is the first time. Do I, nobody have died? There had been a couple of cases, two cases, I think, at this stage. 6th of March, the Garda commissioner, I would say gleefully, announced that he would very soon have the power to arrest and detain people who refused to be quarantined, who had COVID-19, who were suspected of having COVID-19. Now, you tell me, is that, does that sound to you like they're actually preparing in case people get ill, in case that they want to look after people? That they want to be kind to people. John, Does isn't that sound John, anything like John, that? Yeah. John, isn't one of the things, well, I suppose it was one of the things I learned from Brian Lennon. I found him very interesting. I only met him once. Um, I did a piece, a piece on him for the paper at one stage. And he, why am I telling you about him? Oh, yes. He spoke about 
I, I asked him about politics. He was dying at the time, you know, and I was asking him about his life and about politics. And he was really Benedictine. He had written, he read a lot, and he was a very clever fellow. Was, it, was, was this old Brian or young Brian? Young Brian, young Brian. But young was Brian. It all- Young Brian, yes. Young Brian, who died. Yes. Young Brian. He was the only guy who was um, re-elected in Dublin. Do you remember when Fianna Fáil lost in 2000? Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yes. Yeah, I do. Yeah. And I he was that, talking yeah. about pri- what you were talking about earlier on in our conversation, private enterprise versus public interest, pu- private enterprise taking over and the public, the, the, the compassion of the public and the pu- to the public being all being um, decreased and, and the decrease was quite enormous in that. But I was going to have gone off and so going to tell you something he said there. Oh, it's gone out of my head, Fergus. By the way, I think you said before, he said the Irish are quite lawless. Is that what you're talking about? Yes, yeah, yes, that's exactly right. He said, if you want to learn something about Irish politics, said you have to understand that the Irish are completely and entirely lawless. And I thought, Jesus. Oh, he said, absolutely, they disobey laws. Now, I could put, in relation to that, John, do you not think that it is, well, it's politics has to, has to answer the common good. It has to answer public health and the public good. You might like those terms and they might do it all the wrong way but don't they try to do the right thing maybe for the wrong reasons or well, unlike no, Thomas Beckett you know no, the right thing well, for the wrong reasons but they but, do they have to take the public good into account and they have okay. to try and protect no, no, am I wrong I'm only getting an argument no, I'm not saying I, I, I believe don't say you're wrong yeah, you, I don't say you're wrong no I know I know but I don't want to say this, this as well either you know this is what but, I say that we are lawless there is no proof no evidence yeah, this is a lockdown actually has any effect whatsoever. If you were to, and I can I could show you this one with a graph. If you take uh, the spike of deaths, which yeah. somewhere in the middle of April, it, it was, it, it went, it reached its peak and went down very quickly within two to three weeks. So that meant that you were dealing where at the height of the spike of deaths with infections that had come about a month earlier. In other words, about the middle of the March. Of March. That was before any measure introduced by coercion or by governmental diktat. There's no connection. That same pattern can be seen in every country, every jurisdiction in the world. There is no evidence of any correlation between the nature of the, the, the lockdown, the nature of the response, draconian or, or uh, light touch, whatever it may be, and the number of deaths. What you tend to see is that societies either get their spike of deaths early or they get it late. That it seems the virus will have its way no matter what. Mm. And that this is all, at the best, you could say, it's futile. But actually, I would say that it's actually ulterior. It has an ulterior motive. And that's the point of it. I would leave you on the ulterior motive, but I think there is a futility in it and that is causing enormous mental problems, emotional problems and lack of certainty and lack of assuredness. And people are, people are traumatized. Like, yeah. And I don't like to use the word everything's emotional, but they're intellectually traumatized as well. They are tra- socially traumatized by this as communicating beings so but i leave you on the i agree with you there absolutely but i i'm not too sure i I have to leave you well that's a bigger i understand that it's a big story and i know a lot about it but nobody you do you do and i agree with you you do 
But uh, the problem is we live in a society that has a, no longer has a media. It's media. We have a media which is no longer doing what it was established to do, what its mastheads tell us it does. It has flipped its product. When I was a journalist, the objective of media was to try to tell the truth to the people about what happened yesterday. Now, it seems to me the product is something like they will tell the public what the government wants them to hear today. That's not what newspapers are for. And, and what has actually happened is that the profession of journalism has basically left its post. It is no longer a watchdog on behalf of society. There are no discussions. The first week, there should have been, this, the journalists should have been all over. Discussion like this? Yes, like this. like this. A very interesting thing, Mary Lise, you might have noticed this, and I won't mention names, but you know who I mean. The kind, you know the kind of journalist that maybe I used to be one at one point who would write the weekly think piece. Do you know what the think piece is? Yes, I know who you're talking about, yes. Yes. Very great absence of think pieces during the COVID. Have you noticed? No think pieces at all. From well, the Trump great. trumped everything, didn't he? He trumped everything. We, we, we started in the dictionary with appalling and we got to misogyny and then to xenophobia. Yeah, and every day it was an attack on Trump. Yes. And I have to think, are these people looking in the mirror? You know, it was an attack on Trump, regardless of what he was. He was the greatest evil. He contained every moment of evil ever thought of in his stomach. Did Donald yes. Trump. Jesus, he's carrying around a lot of evil. I, <laughs> I, saw, I saw your other interview with, with Fergus, and I thought you made some really interesting points about that whole thing. I totally agree with you, uh, or broadly agree with you about Trump on that basis. I think that, you know, he, he is a very interesting figure. Oh, massively I mean, be, interesting. He's a, totally, He's a mythological Totally. With no sense of, you know, he hasn't learned the form of things. It's here it is. You know, here is it. He won an epic. I'll give you an epic. Yeah, oh, but, but he also can't talk about, you can't really talk about Trump without talking about Trump's people. This is all about Trump's people. It's about the people that Trump identified, yeah. which is like about half of the population of America. The That's people right. who were pushed aside That's right. by modernity. Uh, the people who actually work with their hands, who make and mend the world every day. Uh, yeah, yeah. And the, and, yeah. And, uh, you're completely correct. I, I want to come in here, if I may, and John, quote, if I'm not mistaken, your first book, this is your first book, isn't it? Oh, Driving at the Crossroads. Yes. yes. And because I want to talk about education and Mary Louise, it looks like she's Going to get her coffee. <laughs> Go ahead. But I, I want well, to talk about education and the role that education has in the world today. And John, your experience of education or lack thereof, and Mary Louise, your experience of education and how that might have shaped you. So if you don't mind, I'm going to read a bit of Driving at the Crossroads. And Mary Louise, if you don't mind, I, I want you to, to tune in here. Um, because I think I have something, something, I don't know, to say about it. My father, this is John Waters writing in 1991. My father wanted me to study agriculture at the regional tech in Sligo. I was interviewed and gained a place, but something in me resisted what I suspected he was guiding me towards. I refused to go, and for several months, not a word was exchanged between us. Eventually, I got a job as a clerk with CIE. I've always suspected that my father used whatever political pull he possessed to secure it for me, our crowd being in power for a change. My first posting was in the railway station at Claremaris. 
mainly cross-checking dispatches of bacon by rail from Claremaris Bacon Factory. It would be at least a year before I would begin to get over the shock. Whatever vague imaginings I might have had as a teenager about my future destiny, they did not include sorting through piles and piles of greasy invoices in search of stray bales of bacon and, ta- and taking abuse from a pig-voiced man in the bacon factory, as was now my daily lot. So, John, I wonder what you've been able to quote that, you know, verbatim or whatever, or off, off by heart. But, Mary Louise, we spoke earlier about training to become a journalist and how one might be advised to go about that. And we, we spoke about, are there the facilities, are there the mechanisms in place in the education system to train people to be journalists? And it's funny to bring John up because... John spent a long time as a journalist and a prolific one at that, but he didn't go to college. So you wonder what, what's going on there and uh, what's, what's the right way to go about it? I know it's a broad, broad question, obviously. That's a question. I, I think sometimes the universities have sold young people kind of lies um, in, in lots of their departments. I mean, I can't speak for the sciences because they're very practical and, and, and engineering and medicine and that. And you really learn by mentoring there. In journalism, I, I went to work in the School of Journalism in DCU because they closed the teacher training college, one of the finest teacher training colleges in Ireland, carries for a teacher training college. And I had taught there. And, um, and they, they were, we were replaced and I ended up in DCU in the School of Journal. And I said, I, I have nothing to offer here. I said, this is not my area. But um, I, I, took, I, I began to teach radio, but I had come from an oral background, oral background. So I, I, I used to teach students about sound. I didn't, didn't teach them about being political journalists, you know, or, but I taught them how to make documentaries, which were really dramas brought to life by voices and sound, you know, and I taught them about all kinds of sound. And I went to the BBC and trained myself in radio so I could come back and do it. Now, that's not a show off moment. That's really that I didn't, I thought people, but I found up there that there was wonderful people, but journalism, any, anything I ever did that was, that I felt was of any use, I was able to smell the street. I did it from smelling the street and going out and getting it and finding it. Now, I hope I came with some form because I had done some, I'd done a bit of reading and I did a degree in English and all that, but I came with some kind of grammatical form. I could put a sentence together or I could speak. You need some form, but in the end, you need the practical application of your imagination. You need that glint and glisten and you need a mentor, maybe a good mentor with you or sees something in you. Paddy Kavanagh said it, you just need somebody to put you on the right road, save you a lot of trouble. But the, the, the schools and media to set themselves up and students would come and think they were going to be directors and producers and, but they weren't. And some of them weren't suited for it at all. One or two, but they would have gone off on their own. Some of them became, one of them became a brilliant cartoonist. One of them became a pilot. One, it, it might've been just a jumping ground, but so, my answer to you is, I think, I don't think it sits well in universities. I, I, in fact, I think the DIT or even Ballymont Senior College, you know, they've had more of a, a feel. You need the, the, the combination of both. If you can get it in your own reading and your own form and your way, and, and maybe in a degree in history or a knowledge of politics, or it doesn't have to be a degree. This is this whole apartheid in education. I cannot stand it, you know, that you have to go to university, that there's something wrong with an apprenticeship. So you will take out all the great glass, um, um, stained glass window artists and we'll take away all the great sculptors and we'll 
Get rid of all of them because they're not university standard. Far too many people are living in their heads and within the liberal arts, writing shite sociology, you know, that everybody's going, oh, isn't that wonderful? It's rubbish, absolute traumatic rubbish and not really living in their heads or thinking it through themselves. They're better off to speak, teach a bit of philosophy as opposed to a sociology that has become, you can say anything you want now. And it's a sociological experience. Do you know, I, there's a moment there that is all wrong. There's also an apartheid of subjects, you know, that mathematics is the way forward. You know, it, they, the universities all capitulated to the banks and they made maths, gave it extra points. This drives me cuckoo, as opposed to music or visual art, which was already a leaving certificate subject. So my answer to you is, I think the whole area of apprenticeships and mentoring and craft and skill and bringing back. And if there's one thing COVID has done, it has brought us back to maybe the small and medium sized artisan makers in Ireland and find them out. And the Irish Times did at least Connor, what do you call, was it Connor Pope? He did some, a lot of work on all the different Irish companies. So they were making everything from um, toys to chocolates to of, of our skills, our own skills and our own ability and not living in our heads and then ending up working in a pub. Now, there's nothing wrong with living in your head. Don't you don't think it's going to give you the facility to actually go out and smell the street and follow the story and follow the sheep, follow the follow the energy you know something about universities are closed down energy they have to be very careful with them and i'm talking about the liberal arts now i'm not talking about other areas and i think they're learning that too they're becoming there has to be and also the people who go into universities have to know how to teach there's a presumption that somebody who did a phd or they happen to be an ma should come in and teach the students what like you have to know how to impart your art and you have to know how to pull a talent out of somebody, whether you're a good editor or a good publisher or a good friend or pull it out of somebody. And I think you need teaching and anybody who can, who's trained to teach great nine-year-olds to imagine can do it with 23-year-olds. There's a presumption, I've the worst teaching in the world goes on in universities and nobody wants to talk about it because they're not trained, not properly trained. So my answer to you is mentoring, bit of our skill and training, and a lot of reading around your subject. There's nothing, and you can do that on your own, but there's nothing wrong with form. You learn it one way or the other. And if you can find it, Fergus, Fergus, take it and bring all your other talents with it, because bring all your passion with it. Bring whatever your passion is with you and get a bit of form because you need it. You can't flay around in the air, you have to land. The, remember John said earlier on that the submitters or the editor said to him, well, there's not a, no article that couldn't be decreased by 400 words, which would be <laughs> my entire last rant. Could have probably said in two, two sentences, you know? John, have you any comment on that, specifically around training and what is there and what yeah. isn't there and, and how you went about it without any sort of institutional intellectual training it seems or am i am i wrong to say that no you're not uh, that's uh, i did do that and but that was kind of the commonplace at the time i mean the way that people became journalists then by and large but i'm talking about now the early 80s when i started out 
was. I think there was Rathmines had started up Rathmines yeah. College of Art, and they, they were doing a course, but that was the only course in the country, and that was very novel at the time. Uh, but the way into journalism at that time was through the provincial press. You got a job with a local paper as a court reporter or whatever, or just on the you know uh, shoe leather reporter, you know, and and that's the way you learned. And and what actually then you worked your way up, and if you were good enough, you maybe ended up in a news, national newspaper. And what was interesting about that, and indeed I think about the way I, I, I started by writing for Hot Press, reviewing uh, concerts and, and, and albums and doing interviews, then gradually working my way up down the West. I was still working down the West as a mail car driver. And, uh, and then I came to Dublin and, 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 and went full time and all that. But at that time, you see, the result of that was that there was a variegation of, of personality and background mm. in terms of what ended up, who ended up in journalism. Uh, and you ended up, by and large, on the basis of your commitment and your talent or whatever it would be, right? Whatever you want to call it. Now you kind of make a decision to be a journalist, be a journalist, because uh, <laughs> it's kind of a high profile job and you, it's a career. And so you go into a college and you go in there with like minded people, generally speaking, from the same backgrounds, uh, the same kind of outlook on life. You go to the same tutors. I, I would love to meet some of uh, Mary Louise's pupils and see if they're out there somewhere. They must be cowering under their desks for fear of all the other woke radicals around them because they seem to be, they would have to suppress whatever uh, Mary Louise taught them uh, if they're to succeed in the present model of journalism. But you go into the current newspaper now, it's all groupthink. And you see the groupthink starts in the, in the classroom, it seems to me, obviously, uh, and with the Marxist professor of journalism. And, and you can see that the, the, this in journalism now. I mean, it's quite extraordinary that journalism has now become so many things, but it has essentially become a kind of police force for orthodoxy. It polices certain ideological propositions and it doesn't do very much else. Uh, and the more it kind of goes online and the more it kind of it becomes, uh, you know, resource-wise challenged in resource terms, um, the more it becomes like that. Do you think so, that's right, uh, I, Can I jump in just on, to, to characterize it like that? Would you, would you concur there? Well, I think he makes a, a, a huge point about, about the, the, the people coming from the same background into the, into, into, the, into the classroom, although they do come with different minds and the different mindsets from, from different areas. I think I... I I, I, I was very much my own, my own voice there and I probably didn't get promotion because of it, but I was dealing with radio and radio, I knew about sound and I knew voice and I knew pause and inflection and pitch. And I knew, I knew because I had learned it that in radio, unlike print, the less you say sometimes because your voice is so powerful that one word, like I always used to give that example where Macbeth says to Lady Macbeth when he's just about to kill, kill the king and you know, she says, what if we fail? And his answer is two words, we fail. Now you can either say with your voice and it can change the play, what if we fail? We fail? What if we fail? We fail. 
You know, your voice can do is so powerful that you that radio is a very different medium. And I was looking at it from a dramatic, poetic, lyrical sound, electronic, natural. So I really wasn't in the print journalism. John is making that's his whole world, as well as being a great speaker um, and a good, tremendous voice. But his his introduction to journalism would have been on on the paper, so I wouldn't. Yeah, yeah, I, but I, I think that's. I would agree with that, John. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would. I mean, what you described there, uh, Mary Louise. I mean, what you taught clearly is 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 technical skills, which are so important, and an understanding of how to communicate. I suppose I'm talking about a different layer of the whole project, which is the ideological level, and that it that it you know when I started out. You know, it's, it's complicated in the sense that, I mean, most of the journalists I grew up with in the early, from the 80s on that I, you know, hung around with and worked with and I was an editor and who worked for me, were left-leaning journalists, you know. Mm. Uh, but they were also trained or trained themselves, actually more than anything, in the idea of objectivity. They were interested in getting the other side of the story and in being balanced and not, you know, it wasn't, a, every article wasn't to be a non-slot on somebody mm. for some reason. Mm. which is what it seems now articles are by and large and that you only want to get one side of the story or to the extent that you want to get the other side it's that you want to try to get some ammunition to some kind of rope to hang the person with mm. uh, with that and that is not what journalism was and I don't think it is, it is what journalism actually is so therefore I believe that what's happening now is not journalism and and you know, you, you saw that with knobs on here in the last few years, you know, where journalists are basically activists campaigning on certain issues. Now, there's an interesting and subtle distinction here because there's nothing to stop. I, I, I would say that some of the best journalists I ever had uh, come across were people who are highly passionate ideologically or politically. They were definitely committed. They would be socialists of some kinds or Marxists in some cases, or they would be Republicans or so or whatever. Like that passion, it seemed to go with being a journalist. But the point my job as editor was to say, that's great. And that's wonderful. That's really driving you. And I want you to, you know, follow, the, follow your star and follow the story. But I want you to make sure you, you cover the full story. You just don't do one side of it. And that was my job. And you kind of have to deal with people like that. And that isn't happening anymore because the editors are equally, you know, woke and they don't know what that is. They don't understand that, that, that there is something, you know, about journalism that requires you. It's not a kind of a, on the one hand, on the other hand, it's actually that you tell the full story in all its complexity mm. because every story is complex. Mm. So but, but how do you how do you then because one of the things I found in politics that close people down to and besides territory closes politicians down to I mean it's the territory subsumes the greatest and most creative idea in politics. But how do you then deal with the social media who is if you write an opinion that's outside you know the the herd mind you know or the way everybody is thinking and what like the Trump thing if you were to write anything other than he was the greatest evil the onslaught yeah. is just so huge that i think it tempers what? what people really want to say yeah it does it does for sure i i don't do social media at all i never have well i i did briefly when i ran for election but somebody else managed my i, I hate it i think i think that i've always said and i, I for 20 or 15 17 years i've been saying since twitter started i said they, you know 
in if there is anybody around to an anthropologist or something to investigate the decline of Western civilization oh, yeah. in the in years of the 21st century, they will delve into the whole thing. And after many weeks of study and examination and discourse, they will emerge with a piece of paper. And on that piece of paper, there will be one word by way of explanation for the collapse of Western civilization. And that word will be Twitter. It is the most appalling creation the world has ever seen. It is absolutely, it is anti-civilizational. It is, it is destructive of everything of everything and everybody I that's why yes. I when I asked you how do I find you know Substack you know how do I find your this platform how do I find because I don't use social media for yeah, this yeah. very oh, yeah. reason for this very no, no, reason don't use Google don't use Google use DuckDuckGo John Waters Unchained you'll find it <laughs> John uh, can you talk to me about or talk to us and to everyone about Substack and what that represents for you and the effort you try to make with that not to be writing for the digital audience even though that's what you're dealing with or the virtual audience let's say but the effort that yeah. you make to to write for uh, for a different in a different way yeah well i i'm very much of the view that you know just conversation is the central piece of democracy. I mean, the vote, is not, the vote is not the most important thing about democracy. The vote is only the kind of like the gesture at the end. That is the outcome. But it, it, everything that happens before that, the conversation is the most fundamental thing. And in recent years, we've seen in the world generally and in Ireland in a very kind of, uh, you know, uh, compressed period, we've seen the destruction of public conversation at a massive, massive rate of knots. I mean, talking about Twitter, I mean, one of the things that the reason that I left the Irish Times was that I that they that on Twitter every night, my so-called colleagues were acting like the dogs of war, attacking me for doing my own job. That seemed to be, and nobody seemed to think that this was weird or strange or, or objectionable in any way, that they saw I should suck it up, you know? So I, 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 I think that, you know, so to me, there's, there's a, there was a book came out there, The Shallows, uh, I forget the guy's name, it was some years ago, about a decade ago, about writing and, and about reading. And it's essentially about the difference between the page and the screen. And he, he, he went through all the different reasons why reading on the screen, reading online, is not the same as reading a book. Now, I'll give you one example, which is out of my own, my own experience. He didn't deal with it in this way. But if you think about it, when we could still go into cafes, you might go in with a magazine, The Spectator, or whatever your preference is, in your pocket or in your handbag. And you get your cup of coffee and you sit down at the window and you lay it out and you come across an article. And you could spend a half an hour or three quarters of an hour reading that article sipping your coffee, stopping between paragraphs, looking out the window, thinking it over, looking around you, being inspired to connect something you see on the street with something that's in the article and reflecting on all this, right? And then you roll up the magazine, you stick it in, you're, you're off you go out again, right? Now, compared to do that on, on screen, you're looking, when you look on screen, in my experience, you're looking essentially to pillage what you're reading for facts. So it's a factoid experience. It's not an experience of enjoyment or pleasure. It's actually, you're saying, what's the same? What's the same? And what, do I, what can I get from it? Maybe if I just read the last paragraph, 
it's not you're not reading the thing for an experience you're reading it for because there's something frenetic about the relationship between the pixelated screen or whatever it is <clears throat> and the human sensibility it creates a stress a tension that actually now that's complicated by things like hyperlinks you know you're reading an article and i have to say i do this myself and i put in hyperlinks in the middle of articles which is a terrible thing to do because you distract people you carry them away and the next thing they're five stages away from where they started and they never finished the article you know so i haven't really worked out how to deal with all that stuff yet <clears throat> so i i really believe that the, so <clears throat> it seems to me that the page if you were to actually think of one icon one symbol and one very practical at the same time thing, object in culture that is central to our culture. It is the written page, A4 page with writing on it. Our whole civilization has grown out of that concept of that thing, that and icon. Would you agree that, would you throw in the oral in that, in the sense that yes, I'm, I would. I'm trying to get a read, um, um, the Brothers Karamazov. I, I, I find the print very small, but I'm, I'm, I, it's been read on the BBC, you know, on Audible. So, and it's a good. Oh one. yes, yes. That, that oh, it I, is. Yeah, and I, yeah, I don't. Because I, I, it's when I hear the voice, I just am there. It's it's complete conversation. It is just me listening. It's listening, and yeah. it is, yeah. and it is audible. Yeah. Is just outstanding way forward for people who have glasses or who all of that or. Who, oh, oh, it's outstanding of all time. Okay. Well, but I, what I would say to that is that you write. Yes, oh, I would because because you write differently for a page than you would for a screen, <clears throat> and therefore books are written for pages, hmm. even when they're written on laptops, they're still written for pages because there's a, there is something about that. You, the writer, in, the writer, in, a good writer, intuitively knows hmm. how because. Because you're addressing something through the page or someone through the page. The page represents either one person or many people. Mm. And the screen is like, it's like a, a two-way mirror. Because on the other side, there are hostile, you know, assassins <laughs> waiting. You're, you're aware of this in some way, <clears throat> you know, and, and you, so you pull back. You pull back. You, 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 you moderate things. And you write things in a certain convoluted way in order to kind of avoid being attacked. The great thing, you know, the, the poet, uh, oh, he lost his name. Oh, God, my, I, it's, my, it's nothing to do with his lack of fame now. You'll know. He works in, he works in Trinity. Brendan Kennedy. Brendan Kennedy. He said to me, one of the most beautiful and brilliant things about advice is only about half, three, five words, I think it is. Best advice to any writer. Write as if you were dead. And by that he meant fearless, fearlessly, fearlessly. Have no heed of consequences. I know. Like everything. Because you're right, John. With the screen, you bring insurance policies. You always have yes. a pack of insurance policies there in little box, so that you just won't tell the total truth. Yes. But on the on the other side of that, there's the the the. If you're on social media, there's no vetting. At the same, it works both ways. It's because if you write a comment on social media it's so quick and so easy that you won't hold back and that you'll give abuse that you wouldn't give well, to someone if you, if you were writing them a letter or if you met them on the street. Do you know? So it, there's I, I two, think, two I sides to that. That's more Good the point. sense of retaliation. I think that's a different thing. That's yeah, about, but, but you're talking about the art. You're talking about the writing itself, but, but I'm just I, saying that... Okay. Well, let me break it down. I think that, that what happens on screen and what you described, Fergus, is an engagement through that two-way mirror. 
what happens on the page in truthfulness is an engagement from your very heart to the world, to the future, to posterity. It isn't about any narrow engagement at that moment. That's at its best, I think. Mm. I don't think that it's possible for people to write, you know, with, you know, you were not going to write a blog today onto a screen that's going to go out 10 seconds after you've finished it. That is going to be remembered or read again in 150 years. I just don't think that's going to happen. And, and I think it's got to do all these complex reasons that the page is a different thing completely because the page actually, when you see it all in front of you, you know, like when we, when I started writing up first, I wrote in longhand and then I got a typewriter and learned to type on that. And you know, the typewriter is a very interesting thing because when you wrote a paragraph or a sentence, the first sentence, you had to know what was going to be in the sentence before you started putting it down. Now you just kind of on laptop, on the word processor, you kind of just try and you try something out and you're going to, now you did a bit of that with the tipex in the old days, but at the end of the day, if you actually did that with the typewriter, you would have your a page of tipex and nothing else on it. You know, so uh, like, I think that there's, a, there's something we've lost and we've lost the understanding of these things. You know, it's like, there's all kinds of things <clears throat> Writing is more than just the conveyance of information. It's all kinds of things. It's, it's, it's subtext and, and, and it, it's in, intimation and, and, and you know, hinting and, and double entendre in language and puns that have sort of resonances. This, people don't write, write like that online, in my experience, mm -hmm. or far online. You might have a read a piece online that has, comes from that sensibility, but you don't read, they, they don't, because they're not thinking, they're thinking about making a point, making a point, yes. you know, it's like a boxing match or something. Uh, and and th this is like an entirely different, it's because you're actually writing for an instant audience, essentially, and that audience is waiting for you. So when I write, what I try to do it with my thing, even though it is online, I try to write as if I'm writing for a newspaper or a magazine or a book. So that it's a different sensibility, I believe. And, yes, and, it has, and uh, I would the, like people. The social media is no reflection. It's it's either an attack or an agreement, and it never tells you why. Yes. Yeah, it's it is no reflection. It is no moment of of what's not said either. It's just yes. an attack. It's a basic. And both are imposters, really. You know, because there's no content in the thing. It seems to me, you know, that that you know. The, it seems to me to be valueless, the whole thing. I, I, I honestly don't see a, any benefit to Twitter. I, I, you know, honestly, I think it's, it's, yeah. it's just- Did you ever read Niall Postman's book, the book he wrote before he died called Technopoly? I didn't read that one. I read that the Amusing Ourselves to Death was- Death uh, and The Disappearance of Childhood. No, but Technopoly is, he wrote just before, he died very quickly. And I, we died very young rather, and he died um, very, he wasn't unwell. He just died very quickly. But, which we're allowed to say, um, he, he wrote a book called Technopoly. I think you should get that, John. You would, uh, where he took on the whole internet, the, 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 the resurgence of the internet. And it, it's quite okay. brilliant. And what he has said 15 years ago has completely come to pass. You'd love that yes. book, Technopoly. It's a lovely word. Okay. Thank you. I will. I, will. I, love, I love amusing to ourselves to death. It was a wonderful book when it came out. Yeah. It's over 30 years ago now. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I think that's that's something that's what so Substack. I don't know what Substack means. I mean, so I I, I mean I kind of sometimes give it so the constituent of John Waters. I don't know what it means, but. Uh, 
well, subscriber it's, it's and of... subscriber and then stack of papers. It seems to be a just a bit of a compound word. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Uh, I mean, I would have thought of it a million better words for it off the top of my head, you know. But uh, yeah. anyway, that's what it is. And uh, so uh, it's very good. I mean, it's a completely open platform so far. There's no question of any interference or censorship or anything like that you can say. It's your page. As far as I know, nobody officially looks at it or moderates it or anything like that. Uh, and you're free to do it. You can do. You can put up as much stuff as you like. You can put up articles, videos. You could even put up a book if you want to. I'm sure. Uh, you could. Uh, you can do poems. You can do whatever you like. And uh, you can monetize if you want as, as well. If you, I mean, I haven't, but uh, maybe one day if I. I, I feel like it i will i don't know it's it's something that uh some people do like they'll just uh, allow people to donate a price of a cup of coffee or something like that uh, which is apropos of what i was saying you know the coffee and you know like uh, i i do think though uh, that we've lost something with the loss of the new the, the the pay the piece of paper i always say to people you know that if we'd lived to the age of electronic screens and reading and we'd never heard of newspapers and then somebody one day invented this crinkly thing, which had all this writing on it, and you could roll it up and put it in your pocket. We would think it was the greatest invention of all time. But this is like, in other words, I think that in a certain sense, chronologically, the newspaper is out of place. It should come after all this nonsense. It should be because actually, it will, if we, we will need to restore the newspaper, in my opinion, if we are to restore our civilization. I really do believe that. Mary Louise, let me ask you about the output on the screen, on the television screen in Ireland of late. <laughs> not, the, not the laptop or the phone. And you, you used the word, word epic earlier to describe what, what will be on RT on uh, New Year's Eve. Well, so are, you, just, are, you, are you waiting on the edge of your seat no, for that? No, I'm not. I'm not. I think, I think our uh, RTE has... I, I think it's in real trouble. I think the TV is in real trouble, serious trouble. It's not creating. It's copying critis and criticising, but it's not creating. And... I know it's in real trouble when it's selling land to buy houses. I know the national broadcaster is in trouble. Now that's financial trouble, but that's creative trouble as well. That's serious, serious trouble that nobody really wants to save it. And we're back to the Catholic church. It's, the output is appalling. The voices are appalling. The lack of imagination in programming it's just, it's all the worst form of copying from the British stations and not creating our own. I, I, I mean, I was just, we're going to have a programme on um, New Year's Eve and um, it's, it's going to be, I don't know what it's going to be, but we're going to be interviewing a boy band because what else would you do? And, and it's going to be epic. And I thought, Jesus. The language, the, even the, the lack, even in our reading of the news, the lack of intonation, the bad inflection. What word? We don't know what we're being told because we're not putting sense, oral sense, oral sense on what has been written. And it is, everybody has forgotten that television is an oral medium. Use your voice 
as well as you see the perfect figure, the perfect hair, the perfect dress, the perfect trousers, whatever. It, you hear people speaking and, and as continuity announcers or as informative announcers or as newsreaders or as interviewers or as reporters. What are you talking about? I mean, I'm literally saying that onto the screen. I am watching newscasters who cannot speak, who cannot pronounce their words, who, and it's not that they're not, they're not lovely people. They're just not being trained to do it. What are they talking about? What are the reporters talking How are the reporters repeating what the newscasters are saying? Why has our news got no energy? Why am I not saying this is energetic and alive and I'm going to learn something? Why am I sitting there going, uh, any minute now, I'm going to click over to Judge Judy. Do you know, I went because I lock into it for the news. Why am I? Why are people getting in the way of the news? Why are why am I watching people standing with their hands in their pockets being casual, trying to be formal, casual, casual, formal? Why? Every, why are people getting in the way of the information? Is there something going on? And it's all a kind of a dumbing down or something. And. Everybody, no matter, you don't really know anything, but I'm just out here and I'm going to find out about it because there's nothing else to do. I find... And what do you mean by that? What, what kind of... Um, I just find that there's... That, no that example that you had, like, I honestly just don't watch TV in Ireland because I'm not there. But what do you mean, like, the, the fellow with his hand? I know you're, it's a metaphor, but... Why on, why on what kind of show... Prime, what kind yeah, of... Okay, now, can we say prime time now? Prime time. Why are people standing with their hands in their pockets? What's that about? Why are people standing with clipboards like this? Why aren't they serious and talking to us? Why are they getting in the way? Those kind of things get in the way of communication. And this is the technique I was talking about earlier on radio. It's a technique. You know, if you are going to be, you have to be formal, casual, formal. This is a serious gig, you know, and this casual kind of, um, tell us about now, what did you think? And did you not feel, um, all that kind of high-pitched, non-untrained vocality. Maybe it's me. It's probably me. And they're saying, that I'll hag a bear there, you know, <laughs> from the Jurassic Park era. Doesn't know what she's talking about. Well, I'm sorry I do. Because I do look at other programs on other stations and they have personality and formality and personality and formality. There's a difference between, you know, being, you're not in a restaurant and it's not casual. It is a formal public station and we pay money for it. And I have expectations of standard. So where is it done well? Pardon? Where is it done well? Well, uh, music, music, it does well in music. And it had some very good programs of music in situations around Ireland, you know, different young musicians playing and there were, and there was some young singers and I, I, I and, and it was situated in different parts of Ireland. It was beautifully filmed and nicely done. And then some of our natural history programs, our nature programs, but generally speaking, we are very bad at comedy. And we think if you just, it's interesting that the most watched program was The Greatest Showman. Carnation Street, EastEnders. Why wasn't one of the greatest watch programs over Christmas something we created ourselves? We have to stop copying and criticizing and create. And I, I would say, and it's not that the people in RT are not good and fine and wonderful. It just need a little bit more direction. It seems to be a bit directionless at the moment, the television. 
I maybe I, I, I don't know what John thinks about it. Maybe he doesn't watch television, but I do because I'm interested in what's being said. Why aren't we having proper discussion programs? Exactly what he's saying, separate or whatever. Why, why are, are RT always interviewing each other? <laughs> why don't they find new voices and new faces? One of the best John. programs actually on television is The Repair Shop and the other one is um, Nationwide was good because it was inspirational about people who were doing different things and creating different things from Tidy Towns to the Chocolate here. I mean, there was something going on there, but that's really it. I, I can't point, oh, we copy badly. I mean, it's a rant on it. I mean, it's a public station and I'm paying money for it. And it's also getting money for its ads and it's also getting sponsorship for its presenters. So it needs to clean up, my opinion. John, what do you make of, of all of that? Uh, well, you said, Fergus, that you don't watch uh, Irish television because you're not there. And I don't watch <laughs> Irish television because I'm here. Uh, I, I avoid it, uh, like I avoid COVID if it exists. Uh, and and uh, I think Mary Louise has given a very excellent sort of granular analysis of the thing, you know, in, in, in a few broad strokes of, of what how the thing plays out in front of your eyes. I think the, the, the kind of key to, to understanding what lies beneath this is if you do a comparison. I, when I, I watched TV probably up to about five years ago, and even then it was well gone, and I believe it's much worse. And anytime I kind of am in the room where the television set on now, I'm, I'm confirmed in my belief that it's much worse. Right, within a very short time, and I have to leave that room pretty quickly. But if you go back to the early days of television in Ireland, and, and I mean, we didn't have a television for years, but I used to see it in other people's houses. And, and then for years, and when we did have a TV, like there was, this, there was a certain kind of somber, to, somber tone to the whole thing. You know, it was like a serious business, as, as Mary Louise says. It seemed to take itself and its function in society deeply seriously. And it seemed to extend to its audience a belief that they were intelligent. Mm, that's that right. Worthy of respect. Mm. Now, I don't, anything I saw in recent years, I don't get that. There's a playing down to people as if that they're seeking some lowest denominator, which actually doesn't even exist. But they, they try to get everybody in. And I think the consequence of this is that almost everybody is watching stuff that's beneath them, but they can't help themselves because there's no alternative. And they just sit Correct. watching it and grazing it. And it's having an organic they're having an that's having an organic effect on people because you can actually see it now in the way people are and the way people talk and the way people think. You see, one of the things that I keep saying about mm. the modern world is that there's, a, there's an aspect of it which we don't think about because we don't think. And the reason we don't think is because of this aspect. And that mass television, mass media 24-7. Like when, when the great books about propaganda were written in the early decades of the last century, by Jackie Lullen and, and Bernays and, 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 and Vance Packard and these guys. You know, they were warning about all these things, these dangers of, of, of you know, uh, uh, mind control and hypnosis and entrancement and all these things. Now, at that time, they were dealing with purely with print and a little bit of radio. You know, think of what they would have to say now if they came here and started looking around them and say, what the hell? Because the thing about media now, it's not that it's, it's not what it actually tells us, what it is doing to us in a certain sense, what it is giving us, what we are receiving from it. It's actually all the things that are not happening in our minds because it is going all the time and it is cramming our heads full of nonsense. And, and, 
And as a result, we are speaking back nonsense and we're repeating things. I think that actually to go back to the educational thing, I would say that the big problem with education in general now is that it actually, I mean, I think as Peter Hitchens said, that it doesn't teach people how to think, it teaches people what to think. And that's mm. kind of what television is doing now as well. That it's giving people slogans to mouth to each other, lines to, to you know, understandings of psychology, which are the mo at the most rudimentary level, you know, in the form of soap opera. You know, soap opera sandwiched between news bulletins, which turned the, 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 the news bulletins into soap opera also. Correct. Uh, you know, all this, you know, is, is actually new. And because there is no higher court of media to look down on this, nobody knows that it's happening, unless you're actually acutely aware, as I've had to become through my own experiences and my job and all the rest of it, and watching and trying to figure out why did this happen? Like, you know, how come I don't, I can't work in the media anymore. What's that about? Why is it, you know? And, and so I think, but now here's a new development, which is that uh, this is going to be really, I think, seismic. And if we have a culture left to make anything seismic after this uh, uh, shit show, uh, it is that the broadcasting charge is to be introduced. Now the broadcasting charge is actually not going to be TV licensed in the old style, which is that you had to have a set. It's going to be a charge per household. And I remember actually talking to Pat Rabbit when he was Minister for Telecommunications and trying to tease this out to get to the, the logic of how you can actually charge people for something which they do not use or which they actually might regard as harmful to their lives and their children's lives. How can you do that? He says, well, his answer was, well, you know, in a democracy, you know, broadcasting is an essential element and it furthers, you know, the democratic discourse and therefore everybody has a stake in that and therefore everybody should pay for it. But I say, but what if you actually think it's damaging your country, damaging your culture, damaging your society, damaging you? What then? Do you not have a right to say, no, I'm not paying for that. I don't have a television. I don't want a television. I've never been near it. I haven't been near a television for years. I won't be going near one. Please, you can take my word for it. Here, put the handcuffs on me now. Because uh, that's what I'll be doing, for sure. There's no earthly way I will pay for that. What's going on you think now? We could have a, a bit of a repeat. Mary-Louise, I remember, actually, this is funny. I was with you in transition here during the water stuff. Yes. The water charges. And it was the autumn of 2014. I don't want to get that wrong now. Maybe I'll get the dates wrong. 20... Anyway, around that time, and, and the, the phrase was, no way we won't pay. And there were 100,000 people marching in the street and the government balked. Capitulated. And I remember you were quite critical of that capitulation. What, do you think something similar might happen now? Oh, yes, I can with, tell with you, I'll be, this. I'll be the first. I'm not paying a broadcasting charge. I'm not paying RTE. I'm not paying the license in April. I'm so angry with the, the, the behaviour. <laughs> there's no way I'm paying for it. I, I'll give them maybe 34 euro because everything else has been a repeat. I'm watching Daniel O'Donnell, and he does nothing wrong with Daniel O'Donnell. He's a wonderful singer from Donegal, but I do not want to see him every Saturday night for the last six years. So that's an example of the repetition I'm talking about. Repetition, 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 repetition. No creation. If you create dramas, if you create some cultural programs, if you have some discussion programs, preferably a few cultural discussions, maybe about the arts in Ireland, not just the one-to-one -one interview with, with, with writers 
writers who we know very well, just about other people's minds, other cultural minds, other different minds. Could we have them? Could we have some discussions? Could we have some discussions on religion? Which, to be fair to Vincent Brown, bring back Vincent Brown, because at once time on TV3, um, on Virgin Media, rather, he had um, religious discussions in the evening. I mean, there was some mind involved in it. There's no sense it's a rep repetition of a repetition. And it's all these stars, people who have become stars overnight. I am not paying for their stardom, especially when I know it's talentless and boring and vocally unmelodic and inept. Now, I don't want to go any further. <laughs> but it could be, could it be that they about, are talking about afraid television. I'm we've, about we've spoken a number of times, the two of you have talked about the herd mind and all of that. Could it be that if you put Ryan Tuberty in the chair of Gay Byrne 30 years ago, he would show that same, I know this is it's just an example, you know, for argument's sake, could it be that the person in that chair would manifest the same integrity because they were allowed to, where maybe now you're, you're straightjacketed in, in an organization like that because they're afraid of saying the wrong thing and getting sued and being attacked on Twitter no, and all the rest. I, do you know what yes, I mean? Yes, I do. John, John has said it. And John has said it. Like what RT should be doing, and I use the word again, is elevating, not all of it, but elevate 40% of your outcome. You know, like stop capitulating to noise. You stop capitulating to the lowest common denominator. Stop it. You know, because there are many of us who would, and there is a place for all, for all aspects of culture and all aspects of discussion and all aspects of life in a, in a national broadcaster. But there is no sense of differentiation to the intelligence of the people who are looking and watching and the, their capacity for knowledge and their capacity to live and to want to live, you know, in um, a, a, an inspiring world and an inspired world. And I, you see, there are examples in other, in other jurisdictions of great, great programming you know, and great dramas and great discussions and great comedy. It, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't want to sound like teacher. I, I, I'm not talking about that at all. Entertainment is, is a, when, I, when you go to a good play, you don't have to have read thousands of plays to, to be, to have an impact of a great play and great actors bringing you somewhere. I'm not, there's no impact. It has no impact. And we are paying a lot of money for it. So uh, anyway, I, it's very, I get very annoyed about it, Fergus, because I think it lacks standard. It, it seriously lacks form and standard. And I wouldn't be the only one saying this. And I wouldn't be a lot of people who actually work in it who are directionless and who know it and who know and have a lot more to offer it or were closed down or let go. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, would this I, be, or John, you, you have something to say? Well, I just to address your question there about Gay Byrne and, and, and the present situation, I think there's something in that, but, but it is kind of like the chicken and egg thing, you know, that what's actually going on now is that RT is generating the society and the society is regenerating RT or not, or the opposite, whatever the opposite of regeneration is, because it's getting its own, you know, effluent back and is recycling it. That's kind of like the tone and the, the approach and what is permissible and what is acceptable. I mean, Gabe Barron was a fantastic broadcaster because mm. he had above anything a profound uh, 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 you know, curiosity about the person in front of him. 
he, he was extraordinary in that he actually really listened to you and he wanted to know why you thought what you think and, and, and to make, to communicate this to others. And in the broadcasting and radio, I mean, I remember many times when I was out in the mornings driving and working when I was a young man, pulling into the side of the road, lest I miss a word of the exchange that was happening. You know, like now it's just noise in the background if it is there, I'm sure for people. Uh, as regards your question about the water charges, I'm interested in that. I, I actually don't think, now, first of all, I would say, I mean, I think I possibly agree, disagree with Mary Louise about this and that I, I would have favored, I would be in fair, the, the original water charge thing was a genuine popular protest. And really the basis of it was, you've come for everything. You've come, you've dipped every single pocket we have in my trousers and in my jacket. You're not getting this. That's right. That, that was the thing, right? Now, the whole thing was hijacked by the left, by the, the far left, and that became ugly. And I don't, I didn't, I lost interest in it then. But I think that the fact that there was that awakening then at that time, I think you're right, approximately, Ferguson, the time. About two, it's about six years ago. It's about the beginning of the real, I, that's, that's the moment of rupture I'm talking, sometime around then, maybe just before that. Uh, you know, so, but... I don't know if the, the mindset is there now. I think we've been so worn down, and particularly this year, broken, that actually they will get away with it. And I don't know where, precisely, I, I didn't quite follow uh, Mary Louise's thread in the previous interview I saw, but it, I, it seems to me, I do agree, I think, that actually the issue here is not whether or not we pay for water as a principle. Mm. The, the, the issue here is whether we can preserve and retain the ownership of our own water. Mm. into the future and that that ought to be done by way of constitutional referendum but it seems to me that what's really going on is that certain elements within the political class have done deals already in which that resource will be traded off as everything else has been traded off now in the well, I, I, I'd have climate. to come back on you there because, uh, to you there because I was with Eamon Ryan at the time and uh, about that, because that was my big worry. I didn't, that that the privatization of water would become the big issue. And, and I had, I encouraged the government to put it in the constitution that on no time could our water ever be sold. And I said, and the people will preserve what is theirs. But if they think for a moment, it's going to be hived off to some company like everything else has, they don't believe you unless you put it. And we tried to get, get it into um, legislation and get it ring fenced. And then you got a ring fence that 80% of the, the, the doll and 90% of the Senate had to agree to privatize it, which would never happen. But they still the public didn't agree with that because they had seen they had been, as you say, duped before. So you were right on that. Sure. And I think that we need to preserve it and it needs to be in the Constitution and it will be hijacked by a thousand others if we don't do that. You're completely right. But the government wouldn't do it. They just wouldn't do it. And I said, but it is our breath of life. You know, we should do it. It's the one thing we should put in the Constitution. And no, wouldn't do it. So, well, I, but I'm not too sure yeah, they have, that they have sold it or done deals. I don't think so, John. Um, well, I, 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 I'm afraid. Twenty odd years ago, twenty odd years ago, I remember writing in the Irish Times that water would be the oil of the 21st century. Yes, and you're right. And we have it. We have it. We have it in spades here. Yeah. 
So, like, and particularly down the West, like, there's no end of it. Uh, you know, this is another thing you know, that people down the West particularly couldn't stomach. Like, <laughs> this stuff is fallen by the bucketful every <laughs> minute. Yeah, and they want me to charge me for it, you know, come on. No, that's absolutely yeah. it was ridiculous. But you see, if the government had even used the word preservation, if they had used the word, you know, a national life, preserve, preserve, they didn't even use any of those words. It was just attacks, attacks, attacks. But let me ask you something, Mary Louise, isn't this the point yeah. that unifies that issue with the COVID thing? That actually there is no capacity now for leadership in the sense of being able to invoke you know, confidence yes. and, you know, uh, solidarity. I mean, can you imagine a, a great leader saying to people last March and saying, look, we're in a bit of trouble. We have a, a virus coming. It could be bad. It mightn't be so bad. We don't know. I want you to really, for, your, for yourselves and your families and for all of your fellows, I want you to kind of do a few things. Do you what think you're asking there, listen, John, what you're asking there is, yes, you're completely right. And there were leaders like Leo would say he, had, he did that. Michal Martin would say he did that. Um, Simon Harris would say he did that. However, what you're actually saying there is that you need somebody to say that, that we actually believe in. That, you no. know, yeah, that we actually yes. believe in and say, okay, all right. But but Mary Louise, look what had just happened. We'd voted all these guys out of power. We wanted shot of them. And suddenly they were expecting that we would do what they asked us to do. Come off it. You know, we wanted shot of them. Like you look at the outcome of the election, the election as the one before it said one thing clearly, we, you know, a plague on all your houses. Our houses, yeah. Yeah, a plague on all your houses. So the, in a sense, what actually happened here I would say, you could say was that due to their inability to lead, they had no choice but to coerce. Now that's a fairly staggering judgment on the political class. Well, and they, had a, and they had the enemy at the gate. They had the, the enemy at the gate called Sinn Féin, or they would see it. They had a big enemy at the gate. Yes, well, they're about the same. I don't see I don't No, see but all right, we won't call it an enemy, but they had a serious opponent at the gate. Yes. We won't yes. call them an enemy, but they had a serious opponent at the gate. So what were they going to do? Who had swept up all the Fine Gael, votes, swept yes. up all those votes over the last 15 years, swept them out of power. Yes. They did it themselves, of course, but then they swept it all up. Swept it yeah, all up, disadvantaged area, working class areas, lower middle class areas, swept it all up. Yes. So you're right. But, and so what do we do here? We have to come together. Because that's a real opposition, not each other. Well, you see, I, I mean, Fergus recent earlier there was reading out from uh, my book, Jiving at the Crossroads, which was written 30 years ago. And yeah. uh, now I actually have to really question myself as to how I feel about that book, because either it's a book about a, an Ireland that is long gone, or it's a book which is absolutely unreal in terms of its descriptions of with this country and I'm not sure exactly whether which of those if any either of those is totally true or which of them is the more true so I have to kind of reevaluate. and I did reevaluate there a few years ago when it was reissued and I wrote an, an afterward which kind of tried to do a little bit of that but you see I think something as this idea this idea of this moment of rupture something radical has happened in our country in the probably re relatively recent past where we crossed over some line and nobody really noticed at the time but from then on things became to change began to change in a radical way and it's not like the kind of 
shift that happens in society, which happens organically from within, where you can see maybe that something is moving towards some kind of corruption or moving towards some kind of, you know, totalitarianism or something like that. It's like it came to us almost entirely from outside influences that forces that we had attracted here by virtue of our tax rates or whatever it would be started to dictate to us and demand from our leaders certain things. And as a result, that the country began to be changed without the consent of its people, by and large, except tokenistically. And I think that who, that's give me an now example of who, give me John, give me an example of who demanded that change, who came in under the door with tax wise with well, that change. I, I'm thinking in particular of the corporates, the the, the big right. tech companies, they 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 the the big farm. Big pharma. I mean, the big pharma are a big force in this whole present thing. Make no, have no doubt about it, uh, and and that we are entirely dependent. I mean, something like something phenomenal out of our GDP is 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 for chemicals. Even though not, an, I don't think he's an Irish man alive who ever made a tablet in his life. You know, wouldn't know what to do with it except swallow it. You know, like uh, you know, this is the bizarre absurdity that we have in our culture now and economically, and it seems to me that our leader, political leadership, is now so radically compromised by these circumstances, that our country is not safe in their hands. And that therefore that book, that's why I say that book, Jagging the Crossroads, I mean, I would almost have it banned now because it, it portrays a, a, a version, a very kind, I suppose, compassionate and complex version of the Irish politician, which might be dangerous now to the next generation if they were to believe it. Because I think that actually something deeply sinister is going on and we need to wake up to it. And, and when you say, and what do you see the, as the outcome of that sinister um, element? What, what do you... I, I see that, that under various headings and under different kind of uh, understandings of what I'm say, about to say, is that the, our country is being sold. Our freedoms are being sold. Our, 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 our land is being sold from under us. Our, our, our values are being sold. Our culture is being sold. There is no value on it. The Irish person no longer is regarded as having some sacred right to speak in his own land. And I think that's a big, 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 big moment. And, and we can feel it all the time now. They're bringing in hate speech laws now to stop us even speaking about things, to even asking questions now will be a, a, a hate issue. Uh, this is unbelievable in terms of, for somebody like me who grew up in this country, you know, having the free flow of discussion all the time. That was what made this country such a beautiful place. You know, I've often said it, you know, that, you know, when I was going around with my father as a young fella, you know, in the van, I mean, sometimes if he had the flu, God help us, he'd be arrested now for having the flu, but he used to have the flu. It wasn't the criminal, <laughs> you know, uh, and he, he would ask me to come, well, he'd wake me up in the morning when he was going out, I'd say, will you come? I'm not feeling great. So I'd sit up and I'd bring out the mails and all that. And you go into the post office, like at six o'clock in the morning, like there'd be seven or eight fellas there sorting letters and postmen getting their bags ready. And the free flow of engagement would leave you intoxicated for hours with the joy and the, the humor of it. That's been extinguished in our culture by all of this stuff that's been going on. It's very, if you look around you now, Mary Louise and, and Fergus, I mean, I find this now, and it's something I, I check out with people that I grew up with when I talk to them. That if you, you know, I said, do you find that when you talk to people now about certain things, they start looking around them, you know, before they answer. And then the most will say, ah, sure, you can't open your mouth. This is new in our culture. 
This never happened before. Yes, well, I, and this I, is as a result of all of these forces. You're these right, forces I'm in concert, the corporatocracy, the, the corrupted media, all of these forces, the social media, the bullying, you know, mm. uh, all of these kind of uh, forces which have taken to the streets in order to stop people having thoughts in public, expressing thoughts in public in any way. This is a very sinister, this is the way, you know, we're not allowed to make any comparisons with, uh, mm. you know, past horrors uh, in Germany and other places. But I think sometimes you have to make them because they are opposite. Because very often, I think you look, and if you read into what happened in Germany in the 30s, you see signs of it happening now in other countries, including Ireland. And, and, and uh, I, I think that we need to wake up. You know, there's so much demonization of people going on. There's so much lying about people going on. There's so much spinning going on. There's so much, so many bots out there on Twitter and on Facebook and all over the place telling lies on an industrial basis, night, noon and morning about good people who are simply trying to speak the truth as they understand it. It mightn't be what you believe to be true or what Fergus believes to be true or what I believe to be true. But to the best of their ability, they have tried to find out what is true and they're entitled to say it or they used to be. Now they're not. And what happens? The, the journalism, the profession that I used to belong to, that proudly I belong to, that I longed for many years to belong to, acts to silence them, to bully them, to demonize them, to lie about them. That's all. That's what we've come to in our in our so-called civilization. I think we're in the deepest trouble. I can't believe I'm saying these things. I can't believe I've grown to the age I've grown to and that this has happened in my country. Because I used to read people like Orwell and Huxley and these guys and think, those guys are for the birds, you know. They must be on some wacky-backy, you know, to be imagining these things, you know. So my what, God. What's going to happen would in that Ireland? They would, uh, would that be living at this hour? What? Sorry, yeah. Just what's going to happen in Ireland with, with the... What's going to happen with the vaccine, do you think? Like, will, will you have to take it to get on a, a bus and, and to go to school and to do all that? Have any kind of uh, um, predictions on, on how that'll be rolled out and, and what level of well, the brief obligation there will be yeah, well, on, I, I, on people to take it? Well, I mean, this is the extraordinary thing. This is the kind of thing that's happening now where they say, oh, no, it's not going to be mandatory, but you won't be able to live unless you get it. In other words, you won't be able to go into a shop and buy a loaf of bread. You won't be able to go to a theater. You won't be able to, uh, you know, uh, go on a holiday abroad. Is that you won't be able to cross the, the case road. that 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 will is, is that okay. being, is that in the pipeline? That's what the health czars apparently are telling us. Uh, uh, that this this is this is their 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 no, what they're actually saying. What they're saying precisely. I've heard a couple of quotes. They say, "Oh no, no, it's not going to be mandatory. You know, people just won't be able to go and do things." <laughs> That's up to them. You'll have a you'll have you know, a vaccine passport. <laughs> you know, that's something right. Like but, that. It'll be like a vaccine passport. First. But you know, this is but the point is, you see here that you know we used to have a constitution that would make you laugh off statements <clears throat> like that. But now the top the constitution in this whole episode has been reduced to a roll of toilet paper, and it will remain a roll of toilet paper until some person with a wig or without a wig, calling him or herself a judge. It has got finds about his person or her person somewhere the courage to sit on a bench and declare this thing unconstitutional from top. John, to can I ask you something, Fergus, if this is all right? When you stood for, for politics in the last yeah. election, 
what did you find out about the Irish people? Did you did they disappoint you in in getting when you got to know them when you were going round and talking to them, or did they disappoint you in what they said and what they did in relation to the vote? Did they disappoint you in their attitudes? Could they could did they listen to what you were saying? Did they hear you? What if you, I you'd be I'd be very I, interested I, what you had to say okay. about that. I, I would say that actually it's very interesting. Uh, it's a very interesting. I didn't particularly want to run. I was persuaded to run. Uh, I, I wasn't in the best of health, and uh, I didn't really do that much canvassing. But I'll tell you. I mean, what I found, even in the short time, was something that really bore out what I had seen in the Trump situation in America. I don't mean in relation to me now, but <clears throat> in the context of that divide, that actually the world does now divide into two, and it divides cleanly in a way that I think it does replicate that sense of, I call them the, the concrete classes, or you could call them, I think the Greeks used to call them the able classes, the able men. You know, they're the people who work, the people of muscle, people, not necessarily men, just men, but also women who worked with their hands, who, who worked in shops or who did cleaning work or, or all kinds of work, you know, what used to be called uh, uh, manual labor. And, and, and the other, then what I call the tippy-tappy brigade, which is working now in the virtual world. And I would say that that's kind of the, that there's a kind of a rock solid sense you get from working people that you don't any longer get from people who are supposedly educated. By We're living in their heads, yeah. Yes. And I think the reason for that is that, you know, we don't really think about this. You know, I mean, when I was a kid, when I was going to school, I went to a secondary school. The, the, the kind of idea of the tech was kind of just beginning to lose traction. And not if you went to te the tech at that point, you were regarded as a bit of a dullard, you know. Mm -hmm. And so you had to go to the secondary school. And but I think that that there's something lost there because, you know, our fathers who could make things and fix things had a great wisdom which actually arose precisely out of their understanding of the world developed in learning those skills and how the world fitted together mm. so that they could extrapolate from that sense in relation to politics or the law mm. or just theological issues or algebra or whatever it would be. I remember my father, even then he, as old as I am now, was he still able to do algebra from primary, having left school at 11. He could do leave insert problems in his head. Uh, uh, when I would be floundering, you know, like, uh, so what I'm saying is that there's an intelligence that is, because, you know, if you actually think about it, if you watch a, a, a little child, let's say a, a, a two-year-old child playing on, on, with stuff, and watch the way he or she puts together, you know, a load of bricks on the pack of a tractor, a toy tractor or something like that, and loads them up carefully, yeah. And touches everything and, and feels everything and sniffs things and uses the senses to explore how the world is fitting together. You see, that's kind of the way up to very recently everybody found out how the world worked, what the world was. But then we started, I mean, again, it's a little bit, it's a bit kind of a, against my point earlier about the page and the book. And it's more to your point about the oral culture, uh, Mary Louise. But that, you know, at a certain point it became abstracted because it was all second-hand knowledge that we're receiving. And that, that there was a cutoff of that learning through touch and the senses. And I think that's a very real problem now in the culture where there's a lot of people, and, and again, you see this, I think, from what people tell me about Twitter, that there's a kind of a re remoteness, a detachment, a dissociation 
about so much thinking that you get there, that people have abstracted thoughts that have no basis in actual living reality. And so I, I, I think that, you know, uh, you go know, back we to the were, politics. Go back to when you were standing. Was that that's something that you saw oh, yeah. that divide? Oh, yeah, I did. I did. I feel that very strongly now, and I, I encountered that. I mean, I ran in Dundee, which is a almost suicidal thing to do for someone like me, you know, because it's the most progressive, quote, so-called constituency in the country. But I got enough. As somebody pointed out to me, you got. I got nearly. I got about eight hundred and fifty votes, which is said like that's the that's the that's a, a decent sized uh, village in Mayo. And, and he said, if you could find that village, you'd be you'd be a great man. You know, you could be the chieftain down there. You know, and you, you know, you never look back. And I, I'm still looking for it. You know, anytime I go down and have a look and I count people, I count. You know, yes, I I think it was a it was a it was a certain it was an experimental thing to do. It was a kind of a gesture. I wanted to say this is this is important now. There's a moment that is important. I didn't understand what was about to happen, but I had a feeling about. I have had a feeling for the last few years that we're in the deepest trouble and I, I wanted to at least say I did this um, so I, I but I worry about people now in the sense that I don't think they're engaged anymore I mean it, politics when we were it's growing up politics was, really. was literally it, uh, politics has it in yes it, it, it has yeah, it undermined in itself to the point where people are in, are not ashamed by it but they're semi-shamed by it. they don't want to be involved in it because there, it it it, ex, it expresses such weakness capitulates too often it doesn't stand up you know and that's the thing about the church we were earlier on but i think if i was giving you i think you'd make a, a terrific senator you should think about the senate in the next election it's exactly where you should be as a thinker and a speaker and you, in the Senate, it is exactly the place for you because you are a philosopher and, and a lyrical philosopher and a thinker and a reader. That's where you should be. That's the kind of minds we need. Your kind of mind in the Senate because the Senate has great power, and different kind of power. Did you better power? Did you find? Did you not find it a frustrating experience? I did, but I have found, I, I have found most most situations in my life full of frustration. That was no jagged different, you know, being in the Senate. I did. I found the whole area of territory awful. You know, I, they weren't able to make a national mm. argument. They couldn't see the arts as national. It had to be territorial. They could have the generosity. You know, if there's one word, of course, it's greed across the screen. You've one word, Twitter. I have greed and territory. Uh, but I did find it. Um, are we gone? No, no I think not. we're good. I think we're good. No, I yeah. did find it. There was a freedom in it because you weren't at answering. At least I wasn't answering a constituency and neither would you be. Some politicians, some senators were because they wanted to get into the doll, you know, and they were kind of yo-yoing between the two. But there was a few minds there now that were good. And it was, a, I think that's what you should think about. And you should stand for the Senate. Well. Well, I don't know where I'd stand because, you know, it's extraordinarily difficult to get elected to the, to the Senate. I mean, you get a, you get a nomination. You get a nomination yeah, well, from the Taoiseach, from, from Leo. You ask Leo Veronica. Well, do you think they want John Marlowe? Do you think he'd want it? That bonus thing. 
that boat has sailed a long time since, Mary Louise. I, I'm doomed. I, you never I, know. I'm Politics is the art of coming around again, you know? Here we go <laughs> again, you know? It's never, yeah. you're never, you're never finished in politics. Oh, never. man, I don't know. I think I've done the best I can now to finish myself. Yeah, well, of course, the university, no, you wouldn't get the university, but you'll get a panel. You get on a panel. You should think about it. You'd be an excellent senator. That's my well, opinion anyway, of that because don't don't hold your breath now, Mary Louise, because I, I, <laughs> you might you might expire in the waiting. Fergus, <laughs> how long yeah, does go this on. conversation go on, Fergus? Before the people it's start like, going to bed with the cups of tea. The, the, if if you have to go to bed, that I I can't stop you. But the the audience has I maintained go to bed at three o'clock in the morning. But seriously, the the audience online, I've been intermittently checking it, and it's actually grown very very slightly. It it's not like it's only. People aren't people aren't disappearing, you know. Um, people are really enjoying this, and oh, that's good. Just to make the point, to make the point, I think the value is in the yeah, in the I detail and, and in the substance. But yes, go on, show us. Show I wanted to show. show us. Can you show that photograph, John? John, can you see that photograph, which was the people in a community burying a friend in the middle of the flood? Yes. Uh, they had the coffee. Can you see it, John? He's gone. Can, I can, yeah, on the back of the track. Yeah, oh, I thought I it said everything about the community and acknowledgement of death amidst the yes. rain. What you were talking about earlier on. So I think it's one of the most beautiful photographs. That's the thing about exactly it. Actually, what you were talking about, John, earlier on. Yeah. And you anyway, know, just came know, to mind there. So we might get ourselves as far as even the, the community ever, in my experience, resisted death as a concept because it has to understand that death is part of a life. I mean, however yeah. much I may rail against the prospect of my own death or the, the, about the death of a loved one or anything like that. So this is the first time I've ever seen communities actually thinking, arrogating to themselves the capacity to avoid debt, to actually annul debt, to cancel debt or to postpone debt or to, you know, push debt away. It's not possible. And, and, well, and this but, is but, a terrible but those, but those that, that that happened to are completely and entirely traumatized by it. And it, oh, when yeah. it were made, they were made, it, it, it became a rule. They couldn't go to the funeral, they couldn't bury the people, they couldn't hold their hands. I well, mean, I, it just... I mean, it's it's unforgivable to me, Mary Louise. It is unforgivable. I think it's, yes, but it, it's barbaric. I, I mean, I don't understand. I don't know how the people who are responsible for such a decision can think they can walk down the streets again in, of this country. Mm. You know, well, as I, if nothing had happened. I, I, I will I, certainly be walking up to them and telling them it's what I think of them. Sure. Because I've had... Because I'm involved in taking action, I've got a lot of review people who have been, of course, prime propaganda. But I intend to do spades in spades when this is all over. And forget all this. I will be what I think and what I remember. Let me. I'll be an old fellow by the day, but I'll be a, yeah, yeah, terrible things. Mary Louise, can you hear? Can you can you hear John? Because it might be my I, I, connection is unstable. Kind of 
fading in and out there. Maybe he needs to just, uh, he's just fading in just for a few no, minutes. That's there, terrible, that was the best thing I said. Right. No, but they're just, John, <laughs> I don't know. John, there might be people yeah, again, um, no, using I, the internet. I'd say it might be censorship. Would, would it be censorship? Would it be the, 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 uh, the moguls? Uh, uh, I'll say it again. What I'm saying is, you know, that, you know, that, maybe people picked it up. Oh, that, There's that somebody using it all right. The, the, the good, people, good people have, have had to do this, have, have had to be buried in this way. That their loved ones have had to stay away. I mean, apparently now ten people is all you're allowed to go to a funeral with. You know, like who do they think you are? Like who who are people to be? You know, Myra Hendley is it like that? Is everybody to be a Myra Hendley where they will have the undertaker and and a priest and and maybe the two Paul Bear or four Paul Bearers that leaves four. Well, uh, now this know, is a very uh, that's a very uh, like, that's a bit of a cross comparison now. I, I, I you know I mean come on you know my Henley. I no, just no, but I, I, I well it's, it's not crass. No, because they're being criminalised. People are being are being you see at the very heart of this, Mary. Well, the government would say something very fundamental. Oh, to hell with the government! To hell with the. But government. they're the ones who made they, the they, 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 making people, the rules. I'm only giving you an argument. I know they're they making the rules. They, they're making the rules. I know. I know. Are, Luke. I know. There isn't an Irish person. There isn't an Irish person I know. Not would stand for this. We, sh we should not stand for it. We should That's not. That's a different for it. argument. No, it's not. What they have done to people with this whole thing is they have criminalised something which is fundamental to the human structure, which is that we become sick, we become infectious, we pass it on, others get it. And that process strengthens most of us for most of the time, for most of our lives. At the end, that process lets us down because life is ebbing, is, is, is running out. And that's the natural order of things. To say that you can interfere with that, and in the course of interfering with it, you, you, you brutalize good, decent people and treat them as if they were criminals because they have become ill, because they have become infectious. This is an outrage beyond description. We should not stand for it. We should march on their houses, on their buildings of power and demand that they leave, clear their desks and go the hell out of our sight. They are unfit to lead this country or any country. They're unfit for human company. They are a disgrace to the human race, all of them. I want to see none of them again. That's what I was saying. If I see one of these people again in my life, I will do to them what was done to me for the last nine months in the streets of Dublin, being shouted at by men in Lycra on bicycles and the like. I will tell them what I think of them. They are shameful people, shameful. They have no morals of any kind, it seems to me. And the idea that they're doing this to protect people's health and protect people's life is an obscenity beyond words. I want to come in here and incite because the two of you have a mutual enjoyment and admiration and familiarity with Patrick Kavanagh. And Mary Louise, if you don't mind, could you bring him <laughs> right now? Uh, uh, with some some of his work and just to to also make the the observation and maybe john you you might have a little two cents on this but earlier my louise was 
lamenting the way that Raglan Road is performed usually uh, in song and and the the kind of hacky or the yeah <laughs> I don't know is. the, the yeah. hatchet the, everybody, the hatchet everybody that is taken to it and I never I never really thought about it you know I've I've always enjoyed Luke Kelly's rendition but um oh, I'm I not like, 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 like her but yeah I, uh, I like Luke Kelly's rendition I mean it's not it's it's an ex- extraordinary lyric I mean you know if you actually think of the Raglan Road as a lyric there's probably there's no there's certainly no uh, song which has a popular song that is a po- better lyric than that song I think if it is a song it's a poem it's a fantastic poem as well uh, uh, I, I obviously I didn't know Patrick Kavanagh but I knew his brother Peter very well towards the end of his life because I, I, I met him in certain circumstances and we were in touch for several years and we met quite a few times and he was uh, what Patrick called his sacred keeper and it's to me the great untold story of Irish literature and Irish life in, in the middle part of the last century is the relationship between these two men and what they what they achieved. Um, just just to, to before uh, Mary Louise Weiser thing, I mean, Peter told me, Peter was 12 years younger than Patrick. And when, when Peter was eight, he, uh, he decided, because Patrick was beginning to make Hay as a poet, you know, he was making a name for himself and he was hanging out with A. E. Russell and A. Or a. E., as he was calling himself and, and, and people like that, you know, and, and uh, Pat Peter said he started getting notions himself, you know, he was eight years old. So he went to Patrick one day and he says, uh, Patrick, he says, you know, I'm thinking of becoming a poet. Mm. And Patrick says, dead serious. He says, but you can't. Kid, you're only allowed to have one poet in any family. And Peter, at eight years of age, said he went away and thought about this. And then he decided, he said, well, if that's the case, so be it. In that case, he says, I will serve Patrick's genius. And he did that every day of his life until he died in, I think, 2006, at the age of, uh, gosh, what would he be? he was 96, I think, or 97. Every day of his life, he served, like he used to print. He actually built a printing press, talking about working with your hands and all that. He, in New York, he became a professor of poetry. He told me this as well. He became a professor of poetry because he said that even though Patrick was a genius, he was very ignorant about poetry. And Peter's fear was that Patrick would be go around writing poems that had already been written by Dante and fellas like that, you know? So he learned about everything he could find out about poetry so as to become an advisor to Patrick and stop him making an idiot of himself. Uh, but he, he meant, when he was in New York and Patrick's work had not, wasn't even, wasn't getting printed, he actually built a hand printing press himself with, he, with scrap metal that he found in the streets of New York and he constructed it. It's now to be found, I think it's actually currently up in Inishkeen in the, in the museum up there. It was a news, he donated it to UCD, because they have a, a museum there as well. And, uh, but Peter was, you know, he was, he's ha- he was the hand servant of Patrick. He was his sponsor. He was his financier. He was his muse. He was his editor, uh, you know. And at the heart of their whole mission was what they called the flash. And this is a thing that, that Patrick had. That a poem was, Peter had a phrase, actually, he said to me, which summed up, I asked him, well, what is a poem? What was the relationship between the words and the idea? And he said, oh, he said, uh, in a poem, he says, 
the words are the least important part. He says, in a poem, the words burn up in a tremendous thread of something unusual. And I thought that was one of the most staggering definitions of a poem I'd ever heard. And that was about the flash. You can actually, whoo. And that was the thing that Patrick said it was like, the flash was that the other entered in, that the other world entered into the, to the words. And you could see this flash of something that was beyond comprehension, some mysterious you know, thing that you knew about intuitively, but you couldn't make, you hadn't any evidence for, you couldn't support by any, you know, proofs or, but suddenly you said, ah, it exists. And that was the function of the port. And, and pa Peter told me that, you know, that was the test that when they read, when Patrick would write a poem, they would actually, that was the test. Did it have the flash? And they would each sit there and they would read the poem aloud. And then there was, no, and it would be into the waste paper bin and start again. Uh, so the flash, I mean, which essentially tells us is that uh, from, from Patrick Kavanagh's perspective, uh, poetry was a religious, a spiritual activity. Mm. It, was a, it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't he said, what was it he said? That it's not literature, it's theology. That's right. That's, that poetry was theology, not literature. Right, with that, so, Mary Louise. There were two extraordinary right. men. I'll, I'll, I, yeah, um, absolutely. And John, thank you for that. Sorry, that, that was beautiful. Um. Beautiful. It's better than the poem itself. My God, John. Uh, I, I, both of my tribe anyway, and I think John's tribe come from a part of the country which would be not the rolling hills of Tipperary, tough soil of Roscommon and County Mayo. And the, the poem is called Advent. I'll just, well, I read that. I just read it. I, I don't know it off my heart. I'll just read it. We have tested and tasted too much, lover. Through a chink too wide, there comes in no wonder. But here in the advent darkened room where the dry black bread and the sugarless tea of penance will charm back the luxury of a child's soul. We'll return to doom the knowledge we stole but could not use. And the newness that was in every stale thing when we looked at it as children the spirit-shocking wonder in a black slanting Ulster hill, or the prophetic astonishment in the tedious talking of an old fool will awake for us and bring you and me to the yard gate to watch the winds and the bog holes, cart tracks, old stables, where time begins. Oh, after Christmas, We'll have no need to go searching for the difference that sets an old phrase burning. We'll hear it in the whispered argument of a churning or in the streets where the village boys are lurching. And we'll hear it among the decent men too, who barrow dung in gardens under trees where life pours ordinary plenty. Won't we be rich, my love and I, and God, we shall not ask for reason's payment, the why of heartbreaking strangeness in deepening hedges, nor analyze God's breath in common statement. We have thrown into the dustbin the clay-minted wages of pleasure, knowledge, and the conscious hour, and Christ comes with a January flower. I think it's beautiful. Oh, wow. Anyways, theology, uh, theology. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. It's, be it's beautiful beyond words. Beyond words. Mm -hmm.
well done. Thank you. Thank, Thank you for you. that. So I hope we meet again. Are we yes. off? Are well, we well, well, I... <laughs> <laughs> Should we sing the national anthem or something? No. Jody Mac. No, that was that was wonderful. Um, yeah. Why don't we Why don't we leave it at that? Maybe if if um. Louise, I know you're 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 very involved with that, obviously emotionally, and I don't want to, you know, if where you don't want to be taken. But um, if you wouldn't mind, maybe could you read that cherry blossom piece just to round us off completely? And and John, this is just something. Well, I wrote it, but no, you talk about it. It's very simple. A magnificent cherry blossom tree was hacked down today hacked and fell to the ground. It was butchered on National Tree Day. Imagine that. Butchered to a stump on National Tree Day when young children from Easy Treasy were up in the Aris planting a tree for the president. That is extraordinary. Barbaric. The Dunleary Rathdown County Council came with their electric saws early in the morning. They came at the instigation of a neighbor who told them that the branches were getting in his way. There was no attempt to prune. There was no attempt to ask other of us who live alongside and beside such beauty whether it should happen. The branches were getting in the neighbor's way and that was enough. And the cherry blossom is now a gigantic pencil stump. The cherry blossom stood on our road on a grass verge for 40 years, beautifully. The neighbor did not. It got us all through the awfulness of COVID in early spring when it spread its lily white and perfumed pink leaves over us like an angelic canvas. The children picked the scented leaves, bottled them tight with water and sold us fresh perfume on the road. There's no perfume or movement from the stump. But a neighbor thought the branches were in the way and the cherry blossom is no more. It was raising the footpath, the council replied to my questioning. It was not, I said, and I sent them photos of the flat pavement truth. Who authorized it? Who said go ahead? Where was the reason and the conviction for the savagery? I can't get an answer. Only untruths and loads of evasions. It wasn't me. But it raises huge and urgent questions about us all and about adult citizens and organizational grown-up behaviors that are well below any kind of standard. Behaviors that are not qualitative, behaviors that have no value, behaviors that are meaningless, behaviors that are destructive. There is a kind of godlessness about such behaviors. Carelessness is always about godlessness. We have expectations about our children and our young population, the installation of values, the infusion of feeling and beliefs in the good and the best for them and others. But we lack those qualities in ourselves. It was adults who brought this about, mature adults, mature me, mature my way, mature entitlements and mature carelessness took over and others were left with beauty destroyed. David Attenborough has a new film, it's outstanding. But we are wasting our time looking at it if we don't look in our own mirrors. The mirror of the planet for us all is one of urgency, impact and beauty. Just like the cherry blossom. Our own mirror must be a parallel of that. What was instigated was allowed to happen and happened to the graceful lung that was the cherry blossom on my road is a single 
poignant national and world example of how we have devastated and are continuing to devastate the natural magnificent womb in which we live. Both my neighbour and the Dunleary Rath Down County Council should hang their heads in shame. Their mirrors will not reflect back the joy, the colour, the scent and the splendour of the cherry blossom. Their mirrors will reflect a stumped value, a stumped imagination and a stumped carelessness. Anyway, the Irish Times said they hadn't any space for that. So that was the end of that, John. I might send it to, I might send it to, um, to uh, Substack. I think we should do, set up, set up your own Substack. I would say, uh, Mary Louise, that nowadays to get a rejection from the Irish Times amounts to a compliment. <laughs> thank you, John. And thank you for the hope on relation to COVID. And let's, let me just um, say, this is the third time I'm teasing you about this, but it's maybe not a bad thing that John is present in the room, as it were, because I've said a number of times how you need to write your one-woman play, but maybe there could be a, a one-woman and a one-man play or something. Maybe the pair of yes. you could, uh, yes. could, it could be collaborate. Yeah. It could work because, out really well, and it, it could have it in the in the place in Dunleary, isn't it? The pavilion or the the forty? Yes, what do they call that? Yeah. I can just happening, you know. Yeah, so, uh, it's a very very good that's idea. Because the council as well, that pavilion is. Sorry, yeah, we're it's, it's what John? It's controlled by the council. I have okay. to warn Mary Louise. <laughs> But yeah, Mary Louise, what, what I don't think I'd be, I, I, I think it's very interesting. No, but what you've said is a very interesting concept because John caught me in one there earlier on that I, my arts background would be a background of the technique of communication, whether as an actress or a reader or whatever, as opposed to the underlying ideologies of what, of, of how people think around it. I just take sometimes people's work and bring it to life, be it yes. my own, my own back of my head or poet's work or playwright's work. So it would be a very interesting combination to have somebody act out something and then have the, the, the thinker, you know, to actually bring it to another level. Do you know what I'm, I'm trying to say there? I know I know the combination that you're suggesting, Fergus, might be might be a winning one and I need the money because the vulture fund are at the gate. Well, it's a very interesting point because, you know, I mean, in a certain sense, in the culture of Irish art and literature, the whole idea of ideology and and, and art is kind of a no-no, a you know? It's like, yes, like, yes. Yeah, but in fact, that's something that in other cultures isn't true. I mean, Eastern Europe, in Russia, they, these places, like, you know, the great writers were themselves, like Solzhenitsyn, you know, they were actually activists in a certain sense, you know, as well. Yes, as being, yes, yes, yes. And, and that's something I think that in the future, with the way things are going, that our art will have to become, it will have to move more, because it can't for very much longer sit on the sidelines, you know, doodling while Dublin burns. Uh, you know, I, and I think that, uh, uh, that, you know, there's an interesting moment coming for the arts in Ireland that they have to sort of go up, go up and face reality and face the nature of modern world and how it's bearing down upon their people. Uh, because that's part of, I, I believe, yeah. of what, what the artist's job is. 
And uh, so, you know, it would, that is a very interesting thing. But nevertheless, of course, the big trap there, this is the point, that actually, if you go too much in one direction, you cease to be art. And I think Mary Louise is, gets that balance right because she starts with technique, with craft, with yeah. understanding how things are transmitted, you know, and how things are, are presented and, and, and how they are electrified, as it were, yeah. you know? Uh, and, and, you know, so, because I, I, I would say, if anything, I, I mean, I've written some plays in the past, you know, and, and I probably was, would have to put my hand up that I am a little bit too much, too mechanical in the sense of being, you know, addressing social reality as opposed to existential reality, which I think yes, yes, which is a trap as well. And and you know, we, there's a balance that needs to be found there somewhere. Not necessarily yeah. by me or you or either of us or any of them, but yeah. somebody will have to address this pretty soon. I think in Irish culture terms. And it's interesting that we're not getting. I said recently I was giving a talk before the COVID. Everything is everything is before and after COVID now. I said, well, the theatre is dead. And there was a big, and I said, I don't mean that in a glorious way. I mean that in a very tragic way. People aren't going because yeah. Freel is not there. You know, the great plays, are, we're not really seeing the great plays. They're not coming onto the theatre. And when they are coming on, we're, they're, not, they're not being acted in a way that we believe. And then when you get something like Breaking Bad or you have Netflix, which can maybe take what looks like a play, but is really a video playing into your sitting room, it's very easy not to go and queue and go into the theatre where you can't really hear the actor because he's not properly trained. Um, so there's been a, something has happened the theatre as well, or it's all musical theatre, or it's become something else that they mightn't have grown up. You're right, that we're not getting, somebody has, there hasn't been no writer, as I see it, has come with the, the play that we're queuing round. We queued round to see the Mai, we queued round to see, um, and all the frills with um, uh, Tom Murphy, you know, the Geely concert, you know, we queued. Um, but yes. we're not queuing. We're just, we're we queued to see Chekhov. We will always queue to see Chekhov and we will queue to see the greats, but we're not queuing to see a great Irish playwright. Maybe Enda, maybe the Weir, maybe a few, but at the moment, I'm talking about in the last maybe 15 years, we're not queuing. Yeah, is, is, that, is that something to do with the fact that, you know, the sacramental aspect of theatre has been lost as a result of uh, television yes. uh, and that you know uh, uh, you know perfunctory relationship between cause and effect uh, in, in that narrow form dramatic form which has kind of infected the theatre and also I think that that the, the fear of appearing to be religious has infected the artistic class in general, but maybe writers in particular, that they run hundreds of miles away from anything that touches or hints at something sacred or transcendent. Even though the very dynamism of the human person, regardless of whether you are of any religious belief or none, the dynamism of the human person is itself spiritual and cannot be otherwise, because that is what keeps us getting out of bed in the morning going on in spite of everything, heading for that point on the horizon that somehow we intuit is leading us to somewhere great. 
And John, that, that just phrase caught my attention on the horizon. You finished, uh, as I said to some people, article I've ever seen you write about your being fed up with Catholicism and you were, can, do you remember, do you know what I'm talking about the, at the very end? Uh, I think it was the break for evil. Yes. And you said yes. something about the horizon. Basically you're, you're going, you're going, you're going your own way. But anyway, well, I mean, yeah, I, well, I, I, that's a bit, I suppose, a reductionist uh, in a way, because uh, I, I, I'm kind of uh, very much at a crossroads now in terms of how I see, because, you know, I mean, I, I've spent, you know, my life is divided up into parts, a very devout youth, a period of atheism, a return. And then, you know, I, I think a series of, I mean, we had the public disgraces of the church and, you know, those of us who were inside the, the, the tent in that period had to basically, you know, uh, take a lot of stick that didn't necessarily belong to us, but we took it and we defended uh, as far as we could those who we knew to be good within the church. And then, you know, it just didn't seem to matter. Uh, I think the church now is uh, very unforgiving of those who defended it in the past. And, and uh, it seems that it wants to distance itself from them more than it does from its critics. Uh, and and uh, fine, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. Uh, you know, if that's the way it is, then it's no longer the church that I thought I knew. And I'm happy to wave bye-bye. But uh, I do say this, that there's a profound problem now for our society insofar as that under various headings, and I'll just throw out two or three, morality being the one that everybody talks about. But empathy, for example, there is a Christian empathy, uh, hope, you know, dynamism, you know, uh, uh, desire. That these things are at their, of their essence spiritual quantities. And that if you throw away the, the, the if, you, if you put in the skip all of the stuff you think you can get rid of, you might find out in three weeks that actually something vital was attached to it and that it's now too late to retrieve it. And I think that's a real danger for Irish society now. And that, you know, even under the narrow heading of morality, if you think about it, people think, well, they say, well, I can be moral without Christianity. I can be moral without God. Yes, you can. But can a society which has been trained in a particular model of morality and then abandons it, be moral, is another question. Because the problem is that there is a backlash against the morality. There is a reaction against it. And people think that they not alone can do without it, but that can actually, that is actually a bad thing. And, and what you actually have as a result of, of, of that is a, a moral inversion, where what used to be regarded as good becomes bad and what used to be regarded as bad becomes good. And what's a moral inversion? Is a moral inversion the, that whole um, uh, entertainment industry uh, that we're all entertaining ourselves to death, as Postman says, is that to do with um, me and is that to do with the present and is that to do with the way I feel and I think and the way I believe in myself? Is it is, is that the, the moral inversion? Yeah, that certainly, those are certainly aspects of it. Uh, I, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's quite a profound thing, you know, whereby yes. 
you know, that, you know, like one of the things I've found over the years is that growing up as a Catholic and, 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 and railing against all that, you know, in many ways as a young man and, and so on, that as life went on, and I started to experience more and more and look around me more and more and see how things really worked. I began to thought, you know, those old guys, you know, uh, John Paul and, and Ratzinger and those guys, you know, they weren't, they were, they had, they had something going on there, you know, they knew stuff. They had understood things that we, we kind of didn't really understand about human desire, for example, and, 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 and hope, for example, uh, you know, uh, these are things that, that uh, uh, you know, people now think you can actually satisfy everything materially, you know, mm -hmm. that happens, you can generate hope, hope as a kind of like, almost like just hope, you know, this kind of thing where people say, oh, you're very pessimistic. So, well, if things are bad, I'm pessimistic, yes. But if they're not, I'm optimistic. But I'm not going to be optimistic just for the sake of it. And there is a lot of that that people say, oh, you must you must look on the bright side. You know, the glass is half full, they say. Well, it's also half empty. Mm -hmm. You know, so, you know, like this is what I'm saying, that, that we don't seem to kind of have got to a point where we realize that if we are to get rid of all that stuff, we need to replace it with something. Well, go back to your moral inversion, because I think that is a very interesting point. The Carmelites would say that it's only in the service of others that you find the best in yourself. That's one of their brilliant mottos, I think. It's a very, yes. I mean, you're back to public service. You know, you're back to what Brian Lennon said, you know, where the private has taken over and the, the essence of what the public or community can do. Oh, yeah. And of saints or the community can do for each other has been lost or something or, or we're you're also you're also onto you're also some onto something that you know the ancients understood implicitly that you know only in serving others do you really find joy that's right you know i found uh, I found like when I when I, when my daughter was young, you know, and 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 I was in a kind of an irregular situation and, and intermittent kind of, uh, as they used to formally call it, access, and you know because there were spaces in between, and I was kind of going back to my bachelor lifestyle, I there was I noticed in myself a kind of a, a resentment almost, of the fact that I now had to be responsible for this next five days. And then I caught myself on because I noticed something very quickly, which was that at the end of the five days, when I was to drop my daughter back to school, and I'd be saying, okay, now I'm good for the next few days, I'm going on the town, you know, or whatever. And then I would go drop her to school and I would go home and I would sit looking out the window for two hours and think, I wish she was coming back tonight. Because that it was the actual engagement with her and with the, the responsibility of being her father and doing all the things, you know, cooking her dinner and preparing her lunches for school and reading her stories. That was the real joy of my life. Not the kind of harem scare stuff that I think I thought I wanted to do. And in a way, that's the kind of a perfect parable of what's happened to our culture now, where all the emphasis is on recreation and leisure and all this stuff. When in fact, the, re the joy of life is in engagement with the sorrows and with the difficulties and the responsibility. I, I remember Ray McSharry once saying something in an interview that really caught my eye, but I was only young at the time and I read that. I thought it was a strange thing to say. 
He says, I hear people talking about their problems. He says, they're always giving out about their problems. But sure, what else is life but about but solving problems? And I thought, wow, that's a strange thing. Now I understand. I mean, I understood more recently than that. But, uh, you know, it's in a, that, that's kind of the point that we've kind of, one of the things we've done is we've, we've decided that we have to be getting kicks all the time. Yes, that's right. Enjoying ourselves all the time. And, you, you know, this kind of elevation as sec, of sex mm-hmm. to being the highest value, as it that's were, right. in terms of pleasure in life, in reality. Uh, you know, uh, I think that's a huge kind of, Imposition, and that's a reaction. That's what I'm talking about. Part of the, 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 the immersion. One of the things that I found in COVID, one of the most, and I, I, if somebody said to me, "What's your biggest memory of COVID?" This is it. In the first lockdown of COVID, the Sikhs who live on the North Circular Road, who have these kitchens, the Sikhs are Sikh, uh, Sikh people, who are obviously immigrants to Ireland. They could be Irish nationals at this stage. Started making food for the. Um, the healthcare workers anywhere. And I thought to myself, well, there it is. Now I'm not suggesting that people weren't doing it in a thousand different communities, but the Sikhs were making it in pots the size of, 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 of uh, planets and bringing it out to people everywhere who needed the food. And I thought these, these people know what, what they, these people are extraordinary. We are privileged to have them in our country. This is extraordinary. It was just that whole service of others. Now people are doing it, Irish people do it all the time, but they did more for what I would call you know, integration in five minutes with a pot of soup than any sociological degree in different nations will do. I thought they were absolutely extraordinary. It's my one memory of these three Sikhs in a big kitchen creating food for no money, no, no cost, no nothing, with their big, huge turbans on and their big pin and they cooking the food. And I thought, my God. Yeah, you see, I, I think this is something that we're going to have to think about very, very urgently soon because yeah. artificial intelligence is going to wipe out a lot of the pain. A lot of this, yes. Yeah. So we're going to have to kind of, I think, really start thinking about how we actually retain our identity as human persons, given that we come from a materialist society in which what you do is the uppermost thing about you. How are we going to, as it were, redistribute dignity among the people? in that sort of culture. You see, that these are the questions which we should be talking about now, particularly mm. in the, la- the shadow of this, the Great Reset and all this stuff, you know, Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum. These are questions which are looming very large. I mean, I've been reading about this now for several years. It's a big, big question. And I mean, I was writing 30 years ago about universal basic income when it was, it seemed like a good idea to kind of give people a basic wage you know, every week, regardless of what they did. And then they could augment that in whatever ways they could, and then they would enter the tax system and so on. Uh, that, at that time, seemed to me a good idea. It doesn't now, because now it was likely to be accompanied by Chinese-style social credit systems where you're being spied upon all the time. And if you say a bad word about the government, you lose half your universal basic income, you know, that kind of thing. So there's all these questions, which I, you know, this is what journalism existed to mm. talk about and refuses to talk about it now. It refuses to talk about it. And it drove people like me out of it. Journalism, I was driven out of journalism by journalists, not by anybody else, by other journalists, because they didn't like what I was saying. They didn't like the questions I was asking. 
And it seems to me a journalist who has driven out of journalism for asking questions was in the wrong job in the first place because he was thinking that the job was to ask. I always thought the job of journalism, one of the most fundamental. John, is that what is that what they'd say? Is that what other journalists would say if I asked them? I don't know what they would say. I, I mean, they would tell you some lies, I'm sure. But uh, I, I, I think that they, if they're honest, uh, you know, that's that's what happened. I mean, I describe it in my book, Give Us Back the Bad Roads. Yes, uh, I, read it. I read it. I read it. I read it. Yes, it was well documented uh, and, in, in that, what happened. Yeah. And, 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 and as, as a, a tribute to the book, uh, every single journalist in Ireland ignored it. Uh, not a single word on any radio, television, or station, or newspaper was there published. So that's a great compliment. Again, like you know, the Irish Times turning down your poem. You know, oh, we should celebrate like little, these tiny little thing with about my four hundred words. Because we're, um, we're, but I'm just interested in your moral inversion. I think that it's there's a book there. There's a book there. Yeah, the moral well, inversion. Uh, yeah, I think there is, but. Yeah, I think it'll it'll evolve very quickly now. As to whether you want to go into the depression to actually, what was it? John McGarren used to say that when he when he thought about a play or he thought about another book or he thought about a, he'd go into a massive depression <laughs> because he'd have to do it, you know. And he he'd just sit in a corner in a total depression and for days and days because he knew he'd have to do it. He'd have to do it. So I don't want to gift you with a with a terrible depression. Yeah, that's, because that's, there is a book the there. Other in the because I yeah, have a, I've always had, I, do, I don't know, I've always, I, I have this, I think we have become kind of pornographic in our language, in our actions, in our, in even in music, in advertising, yeah. in marketing, in everything we do is the capitulation to the bottoms, breasts, whatever. It is a capitulation to pornography, like the, the orangutan showing his bottom at the zoo, you know, up against the cage. Yeah. It never stops the way people act. And it's all, and it's confused. It's masquerading as liberation and it's got nothing to do with it. It's got to do with this money. And it's an appalling indictment on young, on the young child with the awe and the astonishment in his poem, you know, in Kavanagh's poem, all oh, that wonderful, beauty of young minds and it's destroyed in even in the eating of sweets it's destroyed everywhere by pornography which makes more money than oil oh yeah and um, it, it, it's a form of enslavement it is enslavement quite the contrary to absolutely. what people absolutely and it has enslaved women and they think because they're running around with their breasts out and showing their bottoms in, in music videos that they are femi feminist and that they are liberal it's got nothing to do with it yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's what I mean, you know, that our value system, it, it's a reaction, you see, to the religious past, and it's like everything. So if, if, if the, the, the religious people said X, we got to believe Y, uh, you know, that's kind of the, the ethic or anti-ethic. And I mean, that's, that's leading you to, to a terrible, terrible place if you let it. Mm. Um, so uh, that's kind of what I think. But it's become I, I, mainstream and it's become boundaryless. It's boundaryless and it's also ageless. And it has seeped over into a thousand different walks of life. It's a part of a moral, just, I was just taken by that phrase, a moral inversion. I just thought that was an extraordinary phrase. That it's a it could be a great book. Mm. But what has happened? Yeah, I think I've got writer's block. Oh, I don't think so, John. I don't <laughs> think you've got writer's <laughs> that's block. The only, that's the only answer. That's the only answer. 
But that's the way the, on it, it start with a series of articles on it. Yeah, that's the antidote to McGarren's depression, writer's block. Acquire writer's block, you'll be safe. Or procrastinate like I do, but I'm not a writer. But even if I have to write something, I shall go on about it for days until I have to do it. And then it has to be done. And sure, that's only about an 800 word little article, you know, and it would be really very, very simple. But I think you should write a series of articles on it because I think it's a very interesting concept. Well, to be fair, that's that seems to be what John is doing on the Substack. Like, well, I will. Oh, well, that's fine. I, but, I'll read all that. I haven't, yeah. I haven't. I've been privy to that. But it, no, yeah, and it's um, it's it's there for for all to see. But John, I think you've said it yourself. It's I I don't want to misquote you there, but I think that maybe going towards a book anyway. Um, and not that it's exactly about that phrase, Marlon version. But am I right in thinking that these these pieces are going towards a, well, a more a bigger well, I, I, I shouldn't say that because uh, publishers hate you when you... Oh, jeez. <laughs> but, but certainly it's, it's a testing out of certain ideas. And I think that, you know, I don't want to write a book about COVID. No, but I think no, no. I want to write a book about 2020 or 2020 to 20, whatever, <laughs> you know. <laughs> However long this nonsense is allowed to go on for, and that, that will depend on us. Uh, uh, and because I think that actually at the heart of it is something crucial in our history, even though on a certain level it's a completely absurd thing. It's drawing out of our culture many of the most fundamental essences and making us look at them again. And, and I mean, Mary Louise asked, touched on that question, is there something positive about it? Well, that's a, a weird kind of inverted positive that actually these things that are happening will perhaps Cause us to stop and consider mm. where we've been, where we think we're going to, mm. uh, because I don't think that we actually have any idea where we're going, where we have been going, and I don't think we've actually made any claim to steering ourselves for quite a long time. We've let ourselves drift, and uh, and and as a result of that, we've fallen into the hands of others who have very clear ideas about what they yes. want. Because you know, Ireland is a very attractive place to a lot of people now. We didn't believe this. See, we grew up thinking Ireland was a terrible dark place and wasn't very interesting because none of the pop bands ever came here or anything, you know. And I, I, all the time there was these people looking, that's a fine place if you have there, you know, if only you knew it. And and uh, that's what's kind of going on now, you know. If, if and, and you know, most people, the amount of people who want to come and live here who can see our our genius, you know, we can't see it ourselves. And we're kind of a bit in, you know, we're a melancholic people too, you know, so we're, we're great when we're given out about ourselves. I know, we're, but you're interesting. We're, we're interesting great when we're given out about ourselves. There's nobody better than to put a cross on our backs and off we go, uptown. Off we go. Where is she? Uptown. Where is she? Appearing at knock. That was a great one. He's <laughs> 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 appearing at knock. <laughs> And, you know, I mean, we are wonderful at melancholia and we're great at it. We're not as good about joy, you know, we, we because we don't think it'll last. Whereas the melancholia will last. It'll see us out, you know. Uh, but there well, I, think, I think the weather trains us in that respect. Because know. We always know, even on a fine day, it'll be raining tomorrow. Yeah? Oh, it'll be raining tomorrow, yeah. 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 So, yeah. Uh, I mean... That's part of our personality. But I think it makes us interesting, you know, uh, oh, to ourselves anyway. Whether it makes us interesting to others is another question. But I mean, I think, you know, we, we, 
like we have we've been very we're very good at um psychoanalyzing ourselves uh and downwards a reduction in a reductionist way uh but i think that you know one balance we we have uh this is, I, I would say what I say often to people these days, Now I'm 65 years of age, and I say to people, I've had a wonderful life in Ireland. It has been, I could not have, if I had chosen the country to be born in, I could not have chosen better. Yeah. It's an absolutely stunningly beautiful country in so many ways. Its personality is so beautiful. Its history is so beautiful. Its music is beautiful. Its landscape is just exquisite. Exquisite. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, and I want to preserve that. I want to keep that for my, my daughter and her children when they come. And for my step-grandchildren, I want them to be happy in this country, as happy as I was, was in it. And I'm worried that that isn't going to be possible now because of the certain forces that are bearing down upon it. And that's why I, I tried to, I went for office last year. It's, try, it's why I'm fighting this COVID, uh, whatever we call it. I'll be polite and just say matter. Uh, and uh, uh, that's why that's I, I've you know I, I I you know in twenty in twenty years I won't be worth talking about. Uh, I might as well try to protect this place, this country, this island, if I can, for whatever time I have left. Right, if I may, I think I'll, we'll we'll leave it there. Okay. Um, but thank you both for. Three hours of, of it was wonderful conversation. Thank you, Fergus, for setting and, it up. Uh, I, I was very exhilarated and informed, and I loved every minute of it. No, you, you, you to exchange your, your phone numbers afterwards in the green room. You know, we'll have to um, <laughs> we'll have to go off air and and then you know do all that. Um, but let me just ask if anyone is watching, uh, and I know there are some people watching. Please do share video with your friends and your foes and your family on all sorts of platforms, send them a text uh, and just on those social media that we were talking about earlier um, so that more people can see it. And I would very much appreciate that. Thanks again for, for watching. This is the last Lagos broadcast of 2020 and I look forward to doing many, many more in the months and years ahead. So if you don't mind, just hold on for a few seconds because this video shaves off when I stop it, it's going to shave off the end. So I'm going to leave a gap for about 15 or 20 seconds. Stop it. And then we can uh, chit-chat afterwards. So sure. thanks again. Uh, Ihoa. Slán. Slán. You are listening to the Logos broadcast with Fergus James Murphy.